Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Party goers, and welcome to Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. My name is David Dedrick. And I'm Mary Dedrick. And hello, Mary. I was going to welcome you from our, uh, what do I say, uh, Listening Party Headquarters East, but right. you're even farther, you're, you've gone even farther east. You... I have even gone even farther east. <laughs> I'm now almost four hours away from you rather than being <laughs> an hour away from you. Yeah. Wow. But thanks to the magic of technology. Yes. We can still record this. It's really good. It's amazing, mm-hmm. isn't it? When you told me that you're in Summerland, which, by the way, is a great name for a town. It is. And obviously oh. just purely a come on for tourists, but uh, mm-hmm. yes. that makes right it beside, even better. It is, right beside Peachland. Yes, another come on. Yeah. <laughs> you like peaches? We got them. <laughs> you like summer? We got it. <laughs> we, actu- we actually, we, um, so I'm I'm here yes. for a couple reasons. Yeah. One reason is that um, Duncan and I were supposed to go to a concert tonight on Saturday mm-hmm. with some friends of ours who live in Summerland. I see. Duncan's parents have a house in Summerland. Yes. Um, that they bought last. Thank you for not calling it a cabin. It's not a cabin. It's a house. <laughs> it's a house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, oh yeah, so we were supposed to go to this concert, yeah. but the, uh, so I had booked off the day before the concert so that we could go up, have a nice long weekend relax but the concert was obviously canceled yes, yes um but my day off was not canceled <laughs> i wanted to keep that day off <laughs> so we decided to come up anyway yeah which we'd done before we did it a couple weeks ago as well yeah and it's pretty nice because mm-hmm. you can come up here yeah stay in the house stay on the on the property yeah and yeah like we did all of our shopping in chilliwack before coming out here okay so we didn't really have to leave at all. That's good. That's yeah. good. So are you, is it just you there right now? Um, His mom and dad aren't with you? No, they actually came up too. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Which I don't know. I didn't know about, but <laughs> and sound... and now his brother's back from um, Ottawa too. So he's here too. Oh dear. So it's kind of a full house. Social distancing <laughs> out the window. Yeah, kind of. But we're like, oh, well, we're all a family. And I was like, I guess so. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> is that how but... it works? <laughs> yeah There's, we're a family we're old. not allowed to see each other yeah it's ridiculous um it's rule bending yeah oh sorry i just have to i'm just gonna readjust this a little bit sure so what's going on here <laughs> if only i had some okay, waiting music go. i could play sorry said so if only i had some waiting music i could play yeah right <laughs> Um, oh yeah, but then the other reason that we we came up is because um, we live in a very small basement suite. Yes, <laughs> and it's nice to be able to walk around in more than two rooms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and nice. That's so it's good. like, oh, if I want to do something, I can go to a separate room and do it. Oh, I would find that so difficult. I have to tell you, dear, the whole to live that in a t- cheek by oh. jowl with someone like in a in a in a situation like that, especially right now where we. You can't just like go somewhere yeah, and r- remove yourself for a little while. We were talking about this on Sneaky Dragon this week, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, we had Nina on as a guest and we were just talking about how 
all of us need to have our away from each other time, you know, and I think most people oh. do, but yeah, particularly for someone like me who introverts, yeah, who find other people can get exhausting after a while and actually get like impatient and and almost maybe angry at people if I'm with with them for too long. <laughs> so yeah, I get that way too. I remember um, I had a friend for a, quite a few years, and he was a bit of an eccentric fellow. And unfortunately, he discovered where I worked when I worked in the parking lots, and he would come every day I worked Oof. and hang around for like four hours. That is not what you want. No, because part of why I liked that job was my alone time, you know, that I was just by myself and I could read. And... Yeah, you just get to sit and read a book. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and the customers would come and go, but, you know, that was fine. But it was just, but yeah, he would come. It was just like so long. And finally, one day, I just like snapped over nothing at all. It was just the most ridiculous argument on earth. And I, I think it was over like whether Midnight, no, whether Drugstore Cowboy was a good movie or not which I do like that film quite a bit. So I was like vociferously, maybe too vociferously, uh, maybe insultingly on the side of that film. And, and he never returned. I never talked to him again after that. And I do regret that uh, outburst. I think he is uh, oversensitive to my reaction. But right. uh, at the same time, who can blame me? Months on end, four hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> it became too much, too much for That's me. That's a lot. <laughs> and I was too awkward a person to be able to say, in a mature way, you know, maybe if you came less often, it would be better because, you know, I have homework to do and things, you know, things I need to get done while I'm at work as well. You know, I kind of do this job because I'm in university and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't. I just was a jerk and, and it wrecked our friendship. It was too bad. Right. Too bad. And I do often think about it. But what can what can you do? And like I say, he was yep. a, he was in a very he was a very eccentric, a very eccentric person. So I don't know if the fences could have amended anyway. I have a feeling he was the sort of person who helped held lifelong grudges so yeah so um i did not play my cards too well there but anyway right. anyway that's yeah i just can't imagine so it's nice see i can i can leave our house and then go outside to the, to the shop slash studio and mm -hmm. do work out here and i and you know and it, inside of the people that i love very much but at the same time you know, yeah i know it's <laughs> you like you know love you but i do also need some time <laughs> to be somewhere else and especially like my yeah, my job is pretty social. Yeah, yeah, that's I spend right. Yeah, pretty much the whole day interacting with people. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and coming home and just continuing that without any sort of break. Yeah, yeah, it can definitely be tiring. No, not uh, yeah. This is an element I just I can't even imagine me. I mean, I guess I have kind of gone through those sort of things, but and I do I you know I do develop like survival strategy, which is basically like absenting myself for time. That just go lay down somewhere else, <laughs> read or something. You know, that's obviously why. Why one reason I love to read, I guess, is or why anyone would love to read, I think, is that that need to remove yourself completely. And it's weird at work. I'm I'm very social and and talk to people, but I really love the times when I'm by myself, just working on yeah staging or putting a dynatrap together or doing one of these little weird carpentry projects I've been undertaking. It's just nice because I'm just by myself. But then when I go in for lunch, I don't really talk to anyone either. I just pull out a book and I read <laughs> during their breaks. So, mm -hmm. and right now it, our our uh, crew is split in half, so it's only half the people in in the lunchroom at a time. So I'm not even seeing everyone, and I'm still avoiding them. So I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm a yeah, I've, massive I've been, introvert. Um, I've been eating my lunch outside at work, That's, so I can yeah, yeah. read my book without um, yeah, getting dragged into conversations. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Which I do like the people that, that sure eat I know. in the lunchroom. I like I like the people I work with too. But <laughs> yeah. you just need that, that that little bit of time sometime just to do your yeah. own thing. Exactly. 
I've uh, I read a couple of interesting books in the last little while. I read one called Yeah, 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 The History of Pop Music from Bill Haley to Beyonce. So I think I talked about that on the show today. Isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, okay. Yeah, never mind. I thought it was The Birds to Beyonce. No, Bill Haley, because oh. that'd be the start of oh. like the rock and roll era, right? Right, okay. Or, or pop era, uh, written by Bob Stanley, member of the band St. Etienne. I think I did talk about that book. And then I just read another one called Are You Ready for the Country, which is about the country rock scene. Uh, and oh, okay. It's kind of, well, it's sort of about the country rock scene, and but it's also about the country meeting rock scene. So it deals with like LA in the 60s, late 60s with groups like, you know, we've talked about them many times, Dillard and Clark and Flying Breeder Brothers and whatnot. <laughs> kind of leading up to the Eagles and then mm-hmm. but also it talks about like like rockabilly in the 50s and how that okay. was how that was like a marriage of country like you know hillbilly music with with swing and, and R&B music that kind of created a unique genre and then talking about how like country kind of ha- has often had to meet rock and roll you know to kind of survive as well so even right. even though you had like reactions to the 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 country um you know kind of country hybrid of of rockabilly then there was the what's called country politan reaction to it the sort of very sophisticated nashville sound headed by chet atkins where they kind of returned to a very staid you know very kind of uh very sophisticated version of country music uh in the early 60s and then various kind of breakaways from that and returns and it's it's really interesting it was a good book it was written by peter doggett Oh, okay. Uh, who's a good, very good author. Wrote a really good book about the Beat- post Beatles uh, cont- uh, money or like uh, legal difficulties and stuff. Called "You Never Give Me Your Money." It's quite mm. a good book about them. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. yeah. So it's, I've been uh, taking advantage of of uh, this uh, COVID nineteen to read a lot of work because we're not playing outside because no one, no one, we can't play spike ball and and no one's as right. enthusiastic about frisbee as I am. It appears. Gotcha. So yeah. So anyway, so mm. yeah, I've just been reading Dune. Oh yeah, how are you, what are you, how are you liking that? I've always meant to read it, but never have got around to it. Mostly oh, because never I'm, read, I didn't realize you hadn't read it. I'm not a sci-fi guy. Like I kind right. of avoid sci-fi unless. I mean, uh, you like um, Philip K. Dick. I know that's he's the first science fiction author I ever I ever read. Uh, up to that point, I avoided him, and then I read this great um, story by Robert Crumb in Weirdo magazine. He wrote he drew a story called the Transfiguration of 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 uh, Philip K. Dick, talking about his um, religious ec- ecstatic experience in the in the seventies, where he believed he had been taken over by a an alien being who began to right. control his actions yep and called which he called valis the fact act of land intelligence system or something like that mm-hmm. which he believed either was god or a giant computer from russia he had a few different theories over what it might have been all all of them not like a seizure <laughs> but anyway mm-hmm. uh he uh yeah, so he... it's. I think it's actually vast, active, living intelligence system. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Did you look it up, or did you remember that? No, I looked it up because oh, okay. he also wrote. A, he also wrote a book called Valis. That's right. It's a really great book. It's super, mm-hmm. super crazy, but it's really good. Uh, and he wrote a few books, kind of. Uh, I think the. I can't remember the next one was called, but um, he wrote a few books. Kind the Divine of, Invasion. That's right. The Divine Invasion is one, and then the, I'm on the Wikipedia page. I'm oh, not just. Oh, okay. I do. I haven't read any of um, his later the ones? Valis series yeah. okay. of um, books. Oh, you by should. Philip K. Dick. You should. I kind of. I don't know. I felt. I went through a big phase where I like read a whole bunch of his books, mm-hmm. and then I kind of just like. Well, that was happens. Like, I think I'm done. <laughs> you, yeah, that happens. I did that a lot. I've done that a lot too. I did that with um, Peter DeVries. Mm, the, okay. The New Yorker writer who had quite a few really great novels, humorous novels in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. And yeah, I just read a whole bunch. But after a while, you you get 
one thing he repeated jokes a couple of times little puns mm. were repeated mm-hmm. like descriptions and stuff and then so that kind of went ah caught you just because i'm not reading these like five years after you wrote the last one that i read i'm reading these like every month yeah um, but after a while i did get kind of tired of them and that's happened a few times yeah like I unless found it's a series that... unless it's a series you don't mind but mm-hmm. but if you're reading different novels the repetition can get kind of personal. yeah and like i found that he sort of repeated a si- very similar character mm-hmm. yeah he definitely i had found a... that a lot of his <laughs> books character. had like a very severe young woman yeah who was often someone that the main character was either like friends with her father or had known since she was younger yeah in some capacity and they like always ended up in a relationship where like she was like very like severe and like unemotional yeah and like um had like had a lot of like perceived control in the relationship yeah there's like a whole bunch of like i read like three or four books of his in a row that all had that exact same character yeah i was like what are you doing <laughs> well based based on his relationships so right you know his 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 first wife was very much that way and then he repeated okay. it subsequently with, with right with, with his women. next four wives his, his girlfriends and whatnot yeah Yes, you'll see that character come up very much. And also, the other problem with Philip K. Dick books is that they suffer from how pe- how books were written at that time, how science fiction books were written at that time. Is right? That yeah, you would write the first so... three. You'd write the first three chapters. Yes, and that's something that drives me crazy with his books. Yeah. is you're reading it and you read yeah the first couple chapters and you're like this is really interesting and then it just takes this crazy left turn <laughs> and you're like what what happened to oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you're like what what just happened to like yeah. all this stuff that you've been setting up like all of that is gone yeah. and you like you're reading like a totally different book yeah so just to explain to listeners so what the people did then was, or what authors had to do as science fiction authors they would write three chapters of their book and send it off to the publisher and if the publisher liked it they would commission them to finish the novel now most writers were organized enough that they had an outline or they had a they had a um you know, some sort of like idea of what they're doing. But Philip K. Dick wrote strictly off the cuff. He did not have any outlines to his books or anything. So because he w- he taught himself to speed type. So he had an incredible, he could type incredibly quickly. And because what he did when he first got married and he wanted to be a writer is he realized, I need to produce this much page and this many pages or this amount of a, amount of a word count in order to support my family. And and so what he would, what he was doing was he was taking speed going to the small little shed or shack that was near where he lived and he would write in there for whatever till he was you know done and then uh-huh. he would do that every day and that started to really affect first his mental stability so a lot of his stories are based on like hallucinations he suffered while he was under the influence of speed and then right. also his mind became more disordered so it became harder for him to to keep uh, track on what he was planning with his books and stuff like that so he'd he'd write three or four different three chapter beginnings of novels and send them off mm-hmm. and then they would come back and he'd be like oh what was like I... months later and yeah, he'd be yeah. like i don't know <laughs> what was i doing with this book <laughs> i know because like a book like the clans of the elfane moon which is like such a great beginning to a, a novel yes and i still like it a lot but it just doesn't yeah. it kind of disappoints you when you get to the fourth chapter and it suddenly takes this weird turn and you're like what all right yeah like, totally and that totally. happens a lot but it happens less with the books like ballas and stuff like that because they're written more like a traditional novel or right. a standard yeah, darkly yeah. As he got like maybe more successful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people were like, oh yeah, like we'll take a book. We don't need you to like 
you know, yeah. submit it beforehand or like once we get your submission, there's like a faster turnaround because you're like a known Yeah. It's also that and, and the meat grinder element of science fiction also disappeared because in the 60s, it was just pure, it was just commerce. That was what was running it. It wasn't anything to do with art. Right. You know, so like getting authors to do stupid things like having them write three chapters and send them off, which is just dumb, was mm -hmm. purely, it's just all about the greed of the publishing companies it had nothing to do with what was best for the, for the, for science fiction or for the writing. Right. Yeah. And so then as a growing up as a kid, you know, most of your experience of science fiction, me, my first experience in science fiction really was Star Wars, which is not really science fiction. It's, it's, you know, it's a space opera, space, space fantasy. Yeah. And so when I saw something like Star Trek, I just found it so like tedious and boring compared to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like for me, and I'm not really like, I know a lot of people who, the reason that they like science fiction is the science element yeah, of it. Yeah. But that's something that I'm not super interested yeah, in. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I mean, I like, I'm interested. I like technology and stuff like that, but only in ways that it suits me, you know? Yes. Like to me, it's, yeah. technology is just a tool. It's, not, it's nothing I'm, I care about. I care no more about, you know, uh, science than I do about like how, why, how my hammer works. You know, I just use right, my hammer. Yeah, like, <laughs> <So it's, laughs> yeah. And yeah, like, um, there, like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson is a current sci-fi author, and okay. he, his books are like interesting, but they're not plot-based. They're mm. more like about exploring different types of future sciences. Okay, you know, yeah. and it's like okay, <laughs> sure. Like I get that there's a market for this, but yeah. like it's not me. Yeah, that's like, not. I can't. I can't be I'm... invested in this story. Yeah, exactly. Because like, there's no character growth. There's mm -hmm. no arcs. Yeah. Like things just kind of like happen and then like you like leave that character for like chapters and you're like, am I, should I care about that person? Yeah. Or like, should I not? Like, I don't understand why. And like the book ended, like all the stories were wrapped up and then the book just kept going <laughs> and I never finished it. So I was like, I, I don't care. Like you finished with those characters and that's why I was reading the book. Like, I'm not going to read your last five chapters. I think I left like a hundred pages in the book. Wow. So I was like, wow. I don't know. Not no, it was um Yeah, you need to be invested in the characters. It can't just be the science. Uh one of my favorite uh most Philippine Dick books have terrible covers, like this awful artwork. Right. But there's one that's really great because to me it just sums up what Philip K. Dick is, which it's a picture of it's a painting of a like nineteen seventies style urban like Main Street, you know, like a bunch of little stores, low you know, one one level you know, street-facing stores along a along a kind of rundown street, mm -hmm. and then flying above it is a spaceship zooming okay. over the top of them. And I'm like, that's Philip K. Dick. He's basically writing about the 1970s or 1960s, but giving it a mere gloss of science fiction of some, you know the fact that they have like you know telephones that you can see someone's face in or whatever. Mm -hmm. But other than that, the science fiction hardly enters into it at all. He's more interested in the people, you know. And sometimes, sometimes he likes to explore yeah, things. Yeah, like if you look at books like um, or stories like. Um, a scanner darkly yeah like there's not really any like no you could do that science story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. in that right like yeah. if you yeah yeah like if you took out like the suit aspect of it yeah right and like made it like less sign like less like futuristic and made it something like that was more a more like realistic kind of technology then it wouldn't be i mean honestly i it could even not be considered a science fiction book if it was written by someone else yeah yeah right no and that's that's one reason i remember when i was working on a show program for West uh, Westercon, which is the, which was, I don't know if it still goes on anymore, but it used to be this sci-fi convention here in, in 
BC, and in fact, it's where Philip, Philip K. Dick came to it in the early 70s and then ended up staying here in Vancouver for a while before mm-hmm. moving back down to California uh, and tried to commit suicide here as well because of his then cold girlfriend. <laughs> he, right. uh, uh But yeah, there's a lot and, of... And, oh, and yeah. also because of his mental illness and drug use. Yes, those all didn't help. <laughs> so then... Uh, so then um, yeah, he just threatened to jump off a building. He didn't really like, he did an actual like suicide attempt where he slid his wrists and took pills and alcohol uh-huh. and stuff like that. None of which worked out because he, his wrist, the, the blood, you know, his uh, cuts congealed. He threw up all the pills and alcohol. And then he was also in his car with the exhaust running in the, in the garage and the car ran out of gas. So then he ended up just having to crawl. He crawled down to his mailbox, got his mail and then crawled back into his house and recovered. <laughs> but anyway... Um, yeah. So anyway, so this, but when I was doing this program, what, what amazed me was all the digs at Philip K. Dick from all the people who are writing little things for it, like all these little articles and, and stuff. And top, oh, really? And like top five things or whatever. And they're all like digs at Philip K. Dick because they always resented him for not wanting to be a science fiction writer, wanting to move into writing for norms or whatever, you know? Right. But yeah, so uh, anyway, let's. Oh, let's, I have oh, one so you, last. You said you have one, one last thing. thing. Say, one last thought. Oh. Yes. Philip K. Dick. Please do. Which is um, when I was working at that camp, yeah. um, I was reading a lot of Philip K. Dick books in my first summer there. That's when I read like a whole bunch. Yeah. And I remember I uh, I would wear a fanny pack Yeah. <laughs> because it was very helpful sure. to, for carrying around all the things I needed to carry around all the time. Sure. And sometimes, depending on what I was doing, especially when I was doing archery, I would bring my book because archery was like a drop-in. Okay. Thing and sometimes there would be like long periods of time where there wasn't anyone there, but I'd have to stay there because people can't just come and do archery on their own. Yeah. So I'd just wait and then people would come and then they'd do some archery and then they'd like go and do something else. Yeah. And so I remember I was I was uh, waiting and some people came in and I was like okay so I put my book back in my fanny pack. Yeah. And they were it was like a wedding and they were like you know like in their like probably like late twenties early thirties and. Sure. Uh, they're all kind of like joking around and they were like, oh, nice fanny pack. And I was like, oh, thanks. And I was like, yeah, like it's great for keeping stuff in it. And they're like, well, what do you have in it? And I was like, um, I've got a book. I've got some <laughs> other stuff. I've got a lighter. And they were like, what book do you have? And I think it was, um, I think it might have been um, Martian Time Slip by Philip K. Dick. Great book. I was like, oh, it's just a book by Philip K. Dick. And they were like, what? Philip K. Dick. <laughs> they were like so excited about it. <laughs> That's great. Well, that's good because he was so yeah. forgotten. Like when I, when I first read about that, like that Robert Crow. I mean, I read about that when I was, I think I was still in high school and weirdo. And then, and then it wasn't until like three years, four years later that I found the book at Valley Village. Like you could not find Philip K. Dick books. You could find them like in bookstores, but they're always like twenty dollars for paperbacks and, and things because they were right. so rare. So I remember, I remember them having. Uh, galactic pot healer at this bookstore in on Granville Street in Vancouver and, and they wanted like $25 for this old paperback and I was like what <laughs> so yeah so anytime I found a Philip K. Dick book it was very exciting and I would a- almost always buy it and then come home and realize I already had it so that's why I have like <laughs> four different versions of Ubik and yeah like f- five different versions of oh, now wait book. for last year no not I've got a couple of that but no there's another one where I just kept buying it over and over again because I would swear to myself I didn't have it because it would be a different cover is it Flow My Tears, the policeman said? No, no. It's an earlier, earlier one than that. It's a, um, uh, n- Not Man in the High Castle. No. That's a kind of memorable book. No, it's uh, one of the penultimate truth. That's the one. Oh, okay. The penultimate truth. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> it's a good book. But I kept, hmm. kept, I kept rebuying it. I don't know why. I kept thinking, 
Do I have I the have penultimate this. book or the ultimate book? I can't remember. Which one is this? <laughs> I do this the ultimate <laughs> ultimate book or is this the penultimate? I can't. And all the covers are different. And I just I remember I bought one in L.A. after my after my tra- my famous tomato incident. Oh yes, yeah, famous. Uh, that's if, dear listener. That's when I was uh, forced with some uh, social pressure by a person on the street to buy a five dollar tomato from them. And was I felt, it a good tomato? And I felt it was a terrible tomato. It was an old yes. mushy tomato that someone had held in their hand for a very long time. Yeah. And uh, but I felt like if I didn't buy it, it would involve me getting punched in the head. Right. And in my in my defense, uh, I don't like getting punched in the head. And also, I was going to a bookstore, which kind of describes the person that I am. That is right. a person who does not react well to threats of being punched in the head. Yeah. Fair. So I just gave them five dollars and got a rotten tomato. Yeah. Did you try to like be like? Um... You can keep the tomato, though. I tried to say I, I tried it. to say I wasn't interested in buying it. Like, as a person yeah. said, do you want to buy this tomato? And I was like, no, no, I'm good. And then <laughs> they're like, then they explained to me very tersely that I was going to buy the tomato. Oh. That I had no choice to buy the tomato. Right. Or, and they couldn't, of course, threaten me because then that would be illegal. Yes. But essentially, they int- they intimated that something involving my head and their fist would, 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 would ensue if I did not buy right. the tomato. So I yes. bought the tomato. I bought the rotten tomato, and then I went and bought a Philip K. Dick book I already had. So it was a really, uh, so really the afternoon good. of throwing my money away. <laughs> productive. <laughs> yes, really productive. <laughs> anyway, anywho. Yeah. So, Mare. Well, maybe we should talk about music rather than talking about Dune and Philip K. Dick and science fiction books. Yes. Let's move on to what this show is really about, which is not us. So Wait, it's not us? No, it is not us. That's not what people tune into this show for. I don't I don't think you're wrong. I think that they do tune into the show for us. Okay. That's fine. If you want to think that way, that's that's okay. I'm the opposite. I have the, okay. I have the opposite view of in life. It explains a lot about me. Uh so so yeah, so we 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 made it through the novelty music uh shows. That was that was good. And uh oh, and I just want to say one thing before we go on. I did I just said I made a little comment on the page that I was feeling a little blue about the show the last little while. And uh Wait, what do you mean? I just on meant, what on what page? Oh, on the on the sneaky, on the Sneaky Dragon page. Um, on the last show I commented. Just someone just gave us a really nice compliment and I just said, you know, I've been feeling a little blue about the show and this is really kind of boosted how I my morale. You know? oh. I don't know why I've been feeling that way. I just you know a listening just, party or sneaky dragon? Listening party, yeah. Yeah. Oh, why have you been feeling blue about our show? I don't know. I just feel like I don't I can never feel like we get the format right. And, oh. I, and I feel like, especially and lately, we haven't been seeing each other, which is kind of why I love doing the show with you, is yeah. we get to sit and talk together. So that's been so, kind of sad. Making. And then I feel like, but we're doing really well now. I feel like we've kind of got better at it. But I felt like the first couple of shows, I just felt like it was all me because you couldn't tell when to, or you didn't feel comfortable interrupting me. Right. Which, by the way, is fine. I you know interrupt all the time. I don't care. But, uh-huh. but um, yeah, it's... So I just felt kind of like, oh, is this like the show felt kind of off balanced and and stuff. So I was just kind of like, uh. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely like I. It feels like a format that needs some like getting used to. Yeah, yeah. Just the doing the it um over Skype. Yeah, yeah. You know. For sure. Well, you sound really good though. I think your your a uh, Wi-Fi is better where you are than than when you're in your uh, basement suite. I'm actually sitting right beside the Wi-Fi router, so oh, okay. that would, it's not super surprising. That's good. That's good too. But I mean, even there, it can be a, 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 have an effect if it's kind of 
if it's just kind of low level, it just doesn't work. Cause, but that's mm-hmm. that's good. Yeah, you haven't broken up or anything that I can remember. So oh, good. So that sounds that's good. good. Yeah, because sometimes during the show you'll get that kind of thing where you're talking and you're you get that weird kind of envelope where your voice kind of uh, goes blah. blah. Anyway, I was yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's just me. This is what they sound like. <laughs> 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 so, so anyway i just wanted to say that that's kind of how, it's nothing to do with like the show itself or anything it's just it's just been like the kind of circumstances we've been in lately it's just kind of there's more than sneaky dragon it's been affecting how i feel about this show i don't know why it's just right me. just me uh mostly because i think ian can kind of ian is more forward than you are and he has no problem like talking over me walking over me you know, right. interrupting me to talk, say something, and that's that's fine. That's the what I want. I don't want to be the person. You know, you want to say what you want to say, but I also want the other person to feel free to say what they want to say and and you know interrupt me. And that's what okay. to me that's a conversation, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is kind of like a different sort of show. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can really compare just like sort of what we talk about here and what you talk about on Sneaky Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Because like on Sneaky Dragon, there's no format. It's true. A, like you just like. <laughs> talk about whatever you want to talk about and it is just like a sort of free-flowing conversation between yeah. you know two friends yeah whereas here it's it is more like there's more formal kind of element there's more formal yeah and like you do the research so you you come in with the information right yeah and yeah. so i'm just like adding to that <laughs> yes. yes but it, it's also like it definitely feels harder to just like have a conversation yeah. about that when we're in this format because I can't see you and I'm not like interacting with you. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. and it's like kind of easier to get distracted by stuff too <laughs> sure. on my end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving you the stink eye when you're playing games on your phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so uh... we're like talking on, we're like trying to talk about a song and I'm like looking at like Sears kit homes on my computer. <laughs> Don't blame you. <laughs> and, then, and that's the other problem with the show for me too is is the research part of the show because i kind of feel tra- trapped in this need to know about music because we did completely beatles and what i got praised about on completely beatles was for knowing so much about the beatles right and everyone writes in and you know whether they were criticizing the show or they were loving the show their comments are always david loves the beatles or he knows so much about the beatles it's amazing how much right. information he brings to the show so so that's become my like my your go to my go to for... whether we do tin, the totally Tintin or full marks whatever is to like research the heck out the of it. The guy who knows the things. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and partly because I want to bring like my enthusiasm for these things, these the music or whatever to the to the format. Right. But I also, but it feels like awkward because you know, like we, you know, we often have this problem where we're like, this is a really good song, we like it a lot. <sighs> okay, <laughs> next. You know, like I, I just I'm not. I'm not really a musician, so I can't say, I know I love when they go from the tonic to the dominant and I like their use of the, uh, of, you know, like a. Yeah. Like I like it when they play the instruments good. <laughs> That's my reaction to it. <laughs> I like how the song made me feel. I got really excited yeah. when this part happened in the song, you know, and or I whatever. Mean, like, you know, that's not like any less of a valid. No, it's not like credit or like um, mm-hmm. way to think about music, Yeah, but it is maybe less compelling radio. Yeah. And I may, and, and I, I'm, what I always hope with the research is it sparks like conversation, you know, but the problem is like the way it's working now is that I'm talking and then you're like, you're listening and then you're like, can I interrupt and say something or should I keep 
silent for a bit or or should I read about Sears kit homes what should I be doing yes yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah it's a it's made for a made for a challenge for us I think but anyway so that that's just to explain that comment I, I after I posted it I was like oh I should erase that so dumb shouldn't say things like that and I guess people it's like such a like you know what I mean it's like when people someone posts on Facebook and they're like feeling really blue today or something like that you know like why? Why are you well, writing like just to get people to say ah? Well, no, that's... <laughs> cheer up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so cheer up, Dave. But I, I am cheered up, everyone. Don't worry, I'm very cheery. No oh, good. I'm glad. So, Mayor, this is a uh, this new this is the new mixtape for us, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, it is. I made two two mixtapes for for uh, one of our listeners. This is Pierce Johnson, who. Listeners may recall from many a couple of Christmases ago, he sent me some running shoes for Christmas, and I've always appreciated that. I always remember that. Oh yeah, a pair. Of, I think they're called Sosnies, Sosnies, something like that. Yeah, uh, running shoes, vegan running shoes as well. They were uh, oh, cool. Made with, uh, well, you know, cool. I was thinking about this a little while ago. What mm-hmm. is what's better, oil-based, <laughs> petroleum-based running shoes or mm-hmm. animal-based running shoes? Right. But vegan ones. Yeah. So like like animal-based ones, they'll. It will deteriorate and, and go back. It's organic. It will go away. Yes. But ones that are petroleum based will be with us will for, for thousands of years mm-hmm. as we until unless some mi- microbe de- develops that will will ingest plastic, which would certainly be helpful for us. The microbes have have evolved that ingest oil, so that's that's helpful for us in terms of like you know oil spills and. But it's not you know we don't have anything of that in plastic. We just have like the slow you know. Um, breakdown of plastics into more and more micro-sized particles that affect smaller and smaller parts of our ecosphere, you know, right down to like little, you know, mic- micro-animals that get them inside them and then they get, and then it expands out into the ecosphere as fish eat these little micro-organisms and then the plastic goes that way and so, and then comes back to us. So I don't know. I don't know. Which is better? Cruelty? Yeah, I don't know. Cruelty or... <laughs> Or environmental destruction. <laughs> environmental destruction. It seems, yeah. you know, like when we talk about original sin or like first sin or the fact that we live in as, as you know, like the idea of the Christian or Jewish idea of us as of how we are in the world. You know, you often wonder if like that's just like an acknowledgement of the fact that you cannot live in the world without destroying the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Like there's no power, there's no energy without destruction because you you know the conservation of energy means that we can only get energy from other energy sources and so mm-hmm. you know whether we're eating plants or animals we're destroying living uh, creatures in the world and so whether you you know you might you might be you might feel like you've dr- downgraded the cruelty of you know not eating a, a cow and now you're eating plants but you're still destroying living creatures in order to give yourself power and it just yeah. feels, it's just a weird, anyway, this is something I was thinking about a little while ago. Well, it kind of reminds <sighs> me, like, at, at Why did work. I go on to this? Why did I go on to this? <laughs> at, at work, yeah. like, I don't make any purchasing decisions at work. Yeah. But at work, they have um, styrofoam cups. Okay. For coffee. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that they have those because they're very well insulated and they're very light. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good for residents who are all, you know, old people. Yeah. Um. And yeah, on these styrofoam cups, it always says, it's like, fun fact, this is not going to be a fun fact, (laughs) fun fact, did you know that a styrofoam cup uh, weighs less or takes up less space in a landfill than a cardboard cup? And it's like, yeah, but that's not, like, the issue isn't how much space it takes (laughs) up or, like, the weight of it. The issue is the fact that 
the cardboard cup will decompose. Yeah, yeah. And you, a styrofoam cup, will never decompose for... It will, but it takes a long time for... Well, yeah, okay, yeah. sorry. You'll decompose in, like, you know, a million years. <laughs> yes. And it's just, like, yeah, one of those things where they're, like, you know, picking what they want to talk about, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's go back around to the happy part of the story that I somehow glossed over, which is that Pierce sent me running shoes. So that was really great. And then he sent me CDRs and he said, Dave, make me a mixtape. And I said, you, sir, are on. And uh, this is what he got. So I don't know whether he thought it was good or bad. I don't, I don't know. But that's... Yeah. Was it... Was it? Do you think it was worth a pair of running shoes? No. Do you think it was equivalent? He, he got the worst part of the deal. <laughs> For sure. I got running shoes. My running <laughs> shoes lasted like two or three years. He probably listened to this two or three times and went, eh, it's all right. Yeah. I don't know why. What did he put these songs on here? Or maybe he loved it. I don't know. But I can't remember. Pierce, if you wrote and said you loved it, I, I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a while ago. Please forgive me if you did. Uh, so let's start, everyone. Let's start with a with a fun beginning song. And this is this is an easy opener because it's the opening track on the album it comes from as well. So that makes makes for a peppy start to any kind of uh, mixtape. I advise, I highly advise cheating. As some people might think of it and uh, start with an opening track from a <laughs> from a CD or album. That way, you're guaranteed a peppy beginning. And so this is from Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks, not 2000 album, Be- "Beaten the Heat." This song is my cello. Let's start, Mary. You're looking forward to this song. I am. Let's hear it. Let's give it a listen. Every day 
Where you getting all that stuff you read? Round the corner do your shopping. Sounds like some kind of basic need. That would really get you hopping. You can hop on this, I know. You're recognizing me. I'm on page 12 and 43. Got the music, so just relax. I play my cello to the max. I've got to play my cello for you. It needs to play or it gets blue. It needs to play or it gets blue. back for my song i think is pretty great so that was what dad what song was that again my cello uh-huh bye dan hicks and his hot licks uh-huh and dad yes i have a question for you sure you said that we weren't doing a novelty mix this <laughs> this time yes and yet yeah dad yeah father yes father dad mm-hmm. i'm pretty positive yes that this is a novelty song why is it a novelty song because he is not singing about a cello <laughs> He is not. No, you're right. This this is a quote unquote penis song. Uh, but you know, Mary, mm-hmm. I I do think that this is like the perfect place for novelty music in a mix. The first song. The first song. Might as well start it with a with a laugh. And, right. But it's a great song. Like oh the, no, it's a fun song. I like it a lot. It's my I think it's my favorite Dan Hicks song. Probably. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's right up there for me. I, there's a lot of songs by him that I love a lot. But but yeah, no, it's a it's a great song and. Uh, yeah, it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. But I just like this the beginning of it. You know, the first gun I ever seen was looking down the barrel. That's a, it's a great start to a song. <laughs> but um, yeah, Dan mm-hmm. Hick, Dan Hicks is actually it's strange, but he's kind of like this sort of uh, in terms of American like music. He's like he's like kind of like a major player in a weird way. Is he? Yeah. It's kind of strange. Like he's not—he was never like super famous. He did kind of reach a certain level of fame, but it's in terms of like influence. He's—he's uh, he's right up there. Um, like he's—he's he's, uh, from the San Francisco area. He was originally born in Ar- Arkansas, but his family moved to Santa Rosa, which is a city near San Francisco, when he was five, and he grew up there. Sorry, did you say yeah. Arkansas is near San Francisco? No, he—he he was born in Arkansas. Oh. In Little okay. Rock, George Clinton's former home, and he. But he moved when he was five to Santa Rosa, near, oh, near okay. San Francisco, yeah. And so he was a very musical kid. He uh, played drums in school. He played drums in marching band. And then he started playing drums in like local dance groups when he was 14. Mm-hmm. And then he learned to play the guitar, uh, inspired by the whole, um, what would you call it, the American folk music revival, I guess. Or as Peter Stamfel of the Holy Motor Rounders called it, the Great Folk Scare. And okay, and like, yeah. how around when was this that he was growing up and was being influenced by the Great Folk Scare? Uh, so this would have been the fifties. Okay. So yeah, San Francisco has always had an amazing music scene. It's just an amazing place because it has it's got so many different regions to it. You know, so it has like you know the big city of San Francisco itself, but then it has like these sort of kind of feeder cities around it, like Santa Rosa, like Oakland, like Berkeley, and places. And then, but then it has like the North Beach. It had like that whole kind of very beatnik scene in that area, uh, the uh, in the North Beach area of of San Francisco. So you had like kind of jazz there. You had you know this kind of 
this all kinds of different things. And so as the, as the 60s started, like there's the garage rock groups from the, the suburbs around San Francisco. You had the folk scene on the North Beach area and, and in San Francisco itself. And then you had, you know, then it kind of burgeoned into like the whole San Francisco, like kind of acid rock scene with Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead and bands like that. But all part of that, the kind of beginning group of that was this group called the, the Charlatans, who Dan uh, Hicks joined um, in 1964. They had a, their first drummer, they felt what wasn't up to par. And so they got rid of him and they brought in Dan Hicks. And so although he wasn't a founding member, he came in very early with the Charlatans. Now, the Charlatans, you know what I'm going to do, Mary? I'm going to play a Charlatan song right now. That way... Just so people can kind of picture what the sound I'm talking about, because it's not right. really what you think of when you think of San Francisco music, because like, they don't really sound like the Jefferson Airplane or like the Grateful Dead. Okay. They have their own kind of unique, weird sound. And so I'm going to play this song. This is probably like their most famous song. It's called Alabama Bound. It's kind of long, but it's just sort of a very interesting song. Uh, this is the way they've structured and arranged it. Like It was arranged by all the members of, of the group. So let's give a listen to Alabama Bound. And then we will come back. So so here we go, everyone. This is Alabama Bound. Yeah. 
So we're back. So Mary, as you, when you listen to that song, you could kind of hear like it's not like what you think of as a rock song. It really is. It's obviously an old folk song called Alabama Bound. The kind of like in a rounder's way, they've they've sort of transformed into uh, something like folk rock. And they were kind of working ahead of the curve in terms of folk rock. Uh, they were ahead of say the Birds in in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. They were ahead of maybe even ahead of the Beatles. I mean, only only. Only Bob Dylan, I think, would have been thinking in those terms at that time of applying right. applying like rock structures to a, to a folk to a folk sound. But so yeah, so so they were they were like. But the thing is, like, so they were musically influential. Like the, you know, folk music was really popular, and there was lots of folk groups that kind of grew out of that scene. Like if you listen to early Jefferson Airplane, and they are much more like a folk rock group in their beginnings than they than they, what they, they later became. Okay, but. So, but the way, but the Charlottes were much more influential, like kind of culturally, like they were like a group of artists for one thing. They weren't all musicians. Some of them were musicians. Some of them are, came out of, you know, art schools and stuff like that. And they were much more interested in, in, in music as a performance piece rather than as a, like, you know, as a create, like being music as music. They were thought, thought of it more like a kind of a 
overall thing. So like if you look at pictures of the charlatans, they're like the coolest looking group you've ever seen because <laughs> they just like they dressed up. They did. They played dress up. They dressed as Victorian dandies. They would dress in in like collegiate wear from like their college students in the turn of the century, turn of the, the 20th century. Cool. They dressed like 19th century sailors. And then when they played their famous legendary gigs at the Red Dog Saloon in, in Virginia City in Nevada, which was about an hour away from San Francisco, they they dressed as cowboys. Not just as cowboys, they had like guns, they had like pistols on their sides. They dressed like fully in full costume. Yeah. And that was super influential in San Francisco at that time. Like the whole thing of Victorian or early, uh, you know, stuff that was being discarded by their grandparents and parents. You know, Peter Stanfield talks about that time, like being able to buy like Tiffany lamps for $15. Whoa. You know, these beautiful stained glass lamps, like these ornate furniture and all this stuff was just given away at that time because everyone wanted the new plywood things. They wanted... Right. They it wanted, was, yeah. It was probably like, I don't know. I can't... Oh man, I can't even think of, of, of an equivalent. I feel like... But I guess people giving away like old, like Pyrex. Yeah. And being like, yeah, oh, yeah. this is like, my mom always used this and like, I want to get the new, I want to use Tupperware instead. Yeah. Yeah. When Pyrex is a hundred times better. Yeah. 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 And so, so yeah, like if you, um, so I'm going to play another song. This is not the Charlatans. This is another San Francisco group that kind of grew out of, um, partly grew out of the Jefferson Airplane because it has Skip Spence in it, who was the airplane's original drummer. Okay. Although he wasn't a drummer, he was a guitar player. Right. So this is his his following band, which was called Moby Grape, which was a really interesting band. It was made up of five guys, bassist, drummer, and then three guitar players who all played at the same time, which of course is a sound I love. And this song is called Hey Grandma. So we're just going to listen to this song. This is kind of like, kind of sums up uh, this element of San Francisco scene. And, and, and so we'll listen to this song. It's a great song. I just wanted to play it because I love this song so much. And I don't, you know, so if, maybe you never heard it. If you haven't heard the song by Moby Grape, you're welcome. So here we go, everyone. This is Hey Grandma. Yes. 
All right, and we're back. So, so hey, Grandma, where the song comes out of is the fact that at this time in in San Francisco, like like when we think of hippies, we think of like a bunch of dirty, long haired guys wearing like like uh, denim vests and their bare chests and and flares or whatever. But that wasn't San Francisco in the early, in the mid sixties. In the mid sixties, women were walking around dressed like they were Edwardian ladies. <laughs> they were in these full floor length dresses with granny glasses. And their hair done in this, in like they were, uh, you know, uh, you know, like um, there's a woman, a type, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of, of that. Uh, there's this famous artist that draw, drew women of, of that time period in a certain way and that they became the something ladies. And I can't remember what his name was now off the top of my head, sorry. But it'll come to me later when I'm laying in bed. Oh, that's who it was. Um, so, but yeah, so this song is, you know, describing that scene. Like, like I know like, when you think about San Francisco, you think, oh, like a bunch of hippies. But that was later. That was like the 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 downhill like the part 70s. of San Francisco. Yeah, well, what? Because when the summer love happened, it started to draw all these people to San Francisco who had no support there. They had no jobs, and it just became all these street people. And and, right. and of course, drugs became more and more potent, and mm-hmm. and and less friend and less kind of you know head friendly. And so you know they had a lot of addiction issues and homelessness, and it just the whole thing became much different than what it was when it started. And so, yeah, so the charlatans kind of influenced that element of the scene. And then they also, um, so one thing that San Francisco is famous for, of course, not just their music, but also the fabulous rock posters that were created at that time period. So you had people like Alton Kelly and Mouse and uh, other names who I can't think of on the top of my head. I'm, I should really do more research on this stuff, everyone. But you know what I mean? There's a ton of famous artists. I, mean, I wish I could yeah. think of them all. Yep. Yeah. I think that you do enough research. You can talk to this. <laughs> and so, so those kind of all grew out of when, when um, the Charlatans played their famous residency at the Red Dog Saloon. They did a bunch of posters up for it to to drop, you know, to make pe- get people to come out there because it was a long way from San Francisco. And so they did these really fabulous uh, uh, designed posters because, like I say, many of the members were art- artists, so they just they you know really uh, did some beautiful work. And so that. It was the start of like the poster scene in San Francisco where, you know, it became this became the posters for shows were their own artwork, totally separate from the music. Those are also fabulous to look at and beautiful works of art. And once again, draw you know, because of the charlatan's love of of, you know, early twentieth century, late nineteenth century uh styles, you know, that a lot of the art nouveau styles that they introduce in their in their work also became part of like the San Francisco scene. And then finally, when the charlatans played their favorite famous fabled red dog their very first show that they performed they made the brilliant decision i put that in quotation marks to drop acid before they played Ooh, uh which, <laughs> which didn't affect them too badly because music is one thing you can do when you're playing acid you might think your guitar is a, a pickle but at least you can still like do something with it mm-hmm. so um yeah, you're not like driving a car you're not like driving a car exactly so so that also was hugely influential on in the scene. And so they were kind of one of the sort of the heralds of, of LSD becoming part of the, the San Francisco scene, which was obviously a major part of it. That's where the Grateful Dead grew out of out of the acid scene with, with you know Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and all their acid tests and all that element of, of acid culture, LSD culture in, in San Francisco all kind of started with the charlatans. So they were a very influential band. The only problem they had was that they were kind of shambolic they weren't really together on stage because they weren't professional musicians necessarily. They were a bunch of guys who got together with a concept. They had trouble getting a record contract. They, you know, they they uh, 
audition for Autumn Records, the, the San Francisco label run by Tom Donahue, which at that time was kind of in the throes of bankruptcy. But even though they're interested in the charlatans, they they fought over material. And so they never ended up going with, with Autumn. Eventually, they signed with Kama Sutra. But once again, they fought over they fought over material. They had an art disagreement over what song should be the, the single. And Kama Sutra put out their own version of it. And, and they didn't really promote the album very well. And so that kind of fell by the wayside. And eventually, Dan Hicks, who had stepped out from behind the drums and had begun to Began to play the uh, the guitar and sing his own songs with the, with the group. Decided either in late '67 or '68 to leave the Charlatans and and strike out on his own. And so he left that group and he started Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. Now, one thing about Dan Hicks, which I think is really interesting, is that he's not a rock and roller. You right. know, like when you think of Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks, and this song is a, like we played my cello. That song is more rocking than the actual Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. They were way more influenced by swing music, say country and western swing, like Bob Wills, let's say, or like there's lots of different swing music of of, of that era. Like swing music can be anything; it can be western swing, it can be it could be like jazz swing. You can have all kinds of music that has that swing element to it. Hicks has claimed that he never heard Django Reinhardt, but there's a lot of Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli in in Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. So I don't know if he just sort of in, internalized it without knowing he was hearing it. Or really didn't hear it and just was influenced by other people who were influenced by Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. Right. And so, so yeah, so he started this group. His first violinist was David Laflamme uh, playing violin. And then he had um, Sherry Snow, who had sung in the San Francisco group Blackburn and Snow, and her friend Christine Ganchet on vocals. And Laflamme left quite, quite soon. He started his own group called It's a Beautiful Day. And so then this other guy named Sid Page came in. And so they did an album for Epic called Original Recordings. And for whatever reason, Original Recordings was not a success, even as a kind of cult success. It got a kind of so-so review in Rolling Stone magazine, which was, you know, which was based in San Francisco. They should have been nicer to their own. their own. But but yeah, if I listen to it now, I think it sounds perfectly fine. I don't know what, it, but it seems like a lot of complaints were that it was dry or whatever. I think it's an example of a group being reviewed by people who saw them live. Oh, okay. And then their album doesn't feel quite as dynamic. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yep. So uh, they kind of broke up after that. In 1971, they broke up. But Hicks quickly reformed the group, bringing in two different vocalists, Marianne Price and Naomi Ruth Eisenberg, and keeping the original bassist, Jamie Leopold, and, and Sid Page. And so then they brought in a different guitar player named uh, John Gurton. And then uh, they were together, I guess, for another two two years. Like I think about 1973, they did their last album called Last Train to Hicksville. And they were quite famous by that. They played Carnegie Hall. They were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. They were on the Flip Wilson show. Like, they were out there, and people knew about them. They were on Don Kirshner's rock concert and stuff. Right. Okay. And then Dan Hicks broke them up. Why? Well, he says, he said at the time, or he said later on that, he said it was getting old. Okay. We became less compatible as friends. Mm. I was pretty disillusioned, had some money, and didn't want to do it anymore. That was his reason. So basically, he, he lived off his royalties for about 10 years. He did do one album called It Happened One Bite, which was meant as a soundtrack album for a Ralph Bakshi cartoon that was sort of never made. It did eventually come out, but it was called Hey Good Lookin', and they changed the plot and stuff that Dan Hicks had written his music for. So, mm, so really, so. they really didn't don't come out. But the thing was, that during this time, Dan Hicks like kind of filled in, I think what music and performing gave to him, he filled it in with, with drugs and alcohol. Oh. So he started abusing heroin and cocaine. He abused alcohol. He would do shows. He would do live shows where he would like get you know be belligerent with the audience and get in fights and stuff like that right. on, from from on stage. 
And not, not great. Yeah, not great. So that carried on for a while through the 80s. And then he joined AA and got got over. Good for him. Got over those problems. And he started a group called the Acoustic Warriors in the 90s. And they played together for, for a number of years. And then in 2000, he was offered this opportunity by this label called Surf Dog Records, which is run by a guy named Dave Kaplan, who was a huge Dan Hicks fan. He came to him and said, you know, I'd love for you to make an album for us. And so Hicks thought it was the perfect opportunity to kind of reform the hot licks. So he brought Sid Page back and, and uh, a couple other players that he'd played with in the past. And not with the same singers, but uh, actually one of the singers on, on this song, my cello, is Jessica Harper, the actress, who is one of an actress I love because she's in so many movies I love. Like? Like, well, funny you should ask, Mary, like Phantom of the Paradise, the great Brian De Palma film. Okay. She was also in Brandon Palmer's inserts, but that movie's not as great as Phantom of the Paradise. But uh, also she was in uh, Suspiria movie. I okay. Love. She was the main character, Susie Banyan in oh, Suspiria. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. She was in uh, Woody Allen's Love and Death. Mm-hmm. One of, I think my favorite of his comedy period movies. She was also in uh, Stardust Memories, another great Woody Allen film. She was in Petties from Heaven with Steve Martin, which is a great movie. She was fantastic in that film. She was in My Favorite Year, uh, which is another great movie which I just love and I will always love. And is then, it your favorite movie? Not my favorite movie, but it's just a great movie. It's about... because oh, it's called My Favorite Year. It's my favorite so, year. It's not my favorite movie, no. It's a great yeah. movie, though. It has uh, her and... I can't remember the name of the, the actor and it marks something. He was in um, another show, Perfect, Perfect Strangers. <laughs> that... He was in a sitcom called Perfect Strangers oh, okay. where he was like a roommate with a foreign guy. Right. Uh, but then, yeah, he's really good in it. It's got Peter O'Toole as sort of playing Errol Flynn, uh, analog for Errol Flynn in the movie. And it's like takes place during the making of a, a Sid Caesar, my show of shows style show. So you get kind of like the the sense of what it was like to be a writer on that show and the backstage stuff and, and like doing a live comedy show for television of that period, you know, what it would have been like. And But plus there's a romance between the Mark character and, and Mark actor character and, and uh, Jessica Harper. It's a really good movie. Yeah, I re- highly recommend it if you can find it somewhere. It's often played on different places. Um, yeah. And then she was also on the it's she was on the it's the Gary Shandling show for four years as well. So yeah, lots of things I've always I've loved, lots of great things. So she's just an actor that's right up up with me. And she also wrote a really funny book called um, I think it's called the Cookbook for Crabby Parents. <laughs> so it's good. It's like full of like this is a funny book about cooking for for a family and stuff like that. It's very good. But anyway, yeah, she was also a singer. She sang in in the Phantom of the Paradise, of course. And then she sang back up with uh, Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks on this song. And the reason that I learned about Dan Hicks and his hot licks, Mary, is because I watched a fantastic show, which we talked about a few weeks ago on Sneaky Dragon called Night Music. And it was a show that was hosted by a sax player from the Saturday Night Live band named David Sanborn. And it was produced by the guy who was kind of in charge of the music music direction on Saturday Night Live, uh, who just died recently from COVID, named Hal Wilner. Oh, okay. And Wilner was an, an eclectic cat, let's put it that way. He had like broad musical tastes. And so right. he, he put together this show that would have jazz musicians, esoteric artists like Van Dyke Parks, you know, former, you know, former groups that you, you, you know, maybe you didn't did or didn't know like like uh, maybe someone like Loudon Wainwright the 3rd or or Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks, but then they would also have like new acts like the Pixies and 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 okay. bands like that on. And just, so it was a really great show. It was just this fantastic mix of music and often they would do things where they would combine players to play together, you know, so you'd get like uh, There's one with Maria McKee, who was who was in Lone Justice, singing with Van Dyke Parks. Just stuff like that. It was just really, really great, right? So cool. And the show like seemed to have like a great budget as well, because you know they'd have like a huge, like a big group of 
of players for some songs and they would just have like a regular kind of studio band for their songs and it was and so one of the shows featured dan hicks and his hot licks playing the song that i'm going to end this little mini documentary of dan hicks with <laughs> and uh this is a song is called i scare myself now it was on the first album original recordings and then he later re-recorded it for when he was playing with his the mark uh hot licks mark ii but it's also featured on this album beat in the heat but i'm going to play a live version from an appearance on San Francisco's KSAN uh, radio station. This was an FM station started by Tom Donahue, who we mentioned a little while ago, or I mentioned a little while ago, who was the ran Autumn Records. And he was known as Tom Big Daddy Donahue, and that was his persona <laughs> on the radio, his Big Daddy. And he was the person who created the FM format, which at that time was a little used radio format. AM radio was much more popular, and that's where most pop music was played. But oh. what Tom Donahue did was he used the FM radio as a way to stretch out the the radio form. So he would play songs that were longer than two and a half minutes, you know, right. what most music was limited and how long it could be by pop, by pop structures. Now, to be honest, I am a huge fan of short songs. I love uh-huh. the fact that I, for whatever reason, I just love the fact that the American version of, of uh, Revolver is 28 minutes long. I just think that's great because it has some of the greatest music you've ever heard in your life. And it's half an hour. They don't stretch it out. They just give you like great little song after great little song. And they don't stretch it out. They don't go, oh, we should make this song four minutes so we don't have to do another one. No, no they're just like, I got another great song. We just not, let's not stretch out these songs. And, <laughs> but, you know, to be fair, music was getting longer and as the 60s went on. You know, even the Beatles did like their seven minute long Hey Jude and stuff like that. So this was a format that allowed for bands to stretch out, for them to play a long song, you know, partly so... You know, the audience could enjoy the music partly so the DJ could go to the bathroom. So they had, you know, they had those things. You could play Stairway to Heaven. You could play Traffic, The Low Spark of High Heeled Boy. Suddenly, like, the music could stretch out and be a little longer in this new format. And eventually FM, just because of sound quality, also became the, the chosen format. And AM kind of died as a musical place. That's why, you know, CKLG or, or CFUN here in Vancouver died because no one wanted to listen to music on the AM band anymore because it's just mono and et cetera, right? So the right. AM okay. became the talk radio format and then FM became the music radio. But anyway, so this is uh, this is Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks in 1971. This is the Mark II version. This is very early on in their in their time together with Naomi Ruth Eisenberg and Marianne Price on vocals. And, and here we go. This is uh, I Scare Myself.
right, and we're back. So there, you, Mary, you could hear a little bit more of what they sounded like then, right? There's it's yeah, more of a spare I, sound and more jazzy. Right. Much more I feel jazzy. like I kind of prefer the sound in my cello. Oh yeah, that's fine. I mean, what what I like, you know, what I like is what I heard first, right? So I right. I was much yeah. more familiar with this version of Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks because I I heard them in the in the mid '90s on Night Music, or and then I you know followed that to buying the CDs or buying the records and stuff like that. And smartly, when they started Mark II, their first album, which is called Where's the Money, uh, which came out in Blue Thumb Records, uh, was done as a live album. And I think that was a good way of recognizing their strengths as a group was in their ability oh, to their live performances you know right their performances yeah yeah so you get some of dan hicks great stage patter and then you get uh i just like things where he's there's one part where he goes um goes i guess you think it's easy to be up here performing it's not easy it's not easy at all thank you (laughs) it's really great so as if he's doing like a little uh performance piece i don't know he's kind of fun he's just a fun guy at that time Mm -hmm. apparently in the 80s not such a fun guy but uh and then my a friend of mine always maintained that if you listen on to listen to Dan Hicks on Beat in the Heat, you can he- mm-hmm. hear that he's wearing dentures. Be- what? Because one of the common problems with, with cocaine abuse is losing your teeth. Right. And uh, so, yeah, he just has a particular sound to his to his voice where there's a little bit of a, yeah. I'm, How can you tell when someone has dentures? Just the way, they're, the way they speak. Hmm. So there may be like, they have trouble pronouncing words the same as they would have if they had their own teeth because they hmm. have fake teeth in their mouth. So they're, they're, you know your 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 palate changes and stuff like that, so it's harder right. for you to pronounce words. You get more sibilant or whatever. Okay, but do you think that that's something that you would have to have heard them speak before to pick up on? No, I can tell when people have like speech impediments when I hear them sing. Okay. Like uh, if you listen to "Float On" by Modest Mouse, you can hear that the guy has a lisp. Right. So yeah. But like, there's a difference between a lisp and having dentures. <laughs> well, the dentures is a theory. That, but that he does sing differently than he did in the in the in the seven sixty seventies is a fact. Okay. The the dentures okay. is a theory that based on the fact of cocaine abuse. Yeah. I, I'm I'm but not if, saying he was right. I'm just saying that was a theory that he. Right. Okay. But I'm just saying like I don't know if you could accurately say if a person has dentures or not mm. based on how they talk if you have not heard if you've not ever heard them talk before. But you've heard them sing. Um, you've heard them sing, so you know how their voice sounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was just a theory you had. I just put it out there. You can agree or disagree. No, that's, that's fair. Sounds, I'm just sounds know. like you disagree, Mary. Well, sounds like you have a counter dis- theory. <laughs> no, I do. What kind is your of counter disagree. theory? Let me hear your counter, counter theory. My counter theory is that yeah. maybe they just had a speech impediment before dentures. I don't think so. If you play "I Scare Myself," which was recorded in 1971, and if you play my cello, yes, which was recorded in uh, 2000, you, you can hear the difference. Yeah. So I invite people. <laughs> I invite listeners to listen to both songs again and then write in with their own theories. Right. If you think my friend was so wrong, Mary. Hey, you you yourself said it was just a theory. I know. I, when, I, when I'm defending. <laughs> was super yeah, silly. apparently. Jeez. <laughs> All right. Well, that ends our little mini. That was a mini documentary, Mary. It was a mini documentary. Dan Hicks. You have a lot to say about Dan Hicks. I like Dan Hicks. I think he's really great. And I think that he's an underappreciated part of, of uh, modern American music. All right. Enough of that. Let us, All right. Let us move on to song number two. Okay. Which is... By a band we've heard before. This is Low. This song is called California. And it comes from an, an album we've heard a song from before. And what that tells me is that I bought this CD while I was putting together these mixtapes. <laughs> and that I liked some songs on it and I wanted to put them onto, because they were fresh in my mind, I wanted to put them onto CDs so other people could hear this music and, and like this. What's the, what's the CD? It's called The Great Destroyer. 
came out in 2005. So let's give it let's give a listen to California by Low. I knew that you loved my cello because we've we've heard your whole life. So I I did kind of forget to ask you about it, but I know that you love that song. So no, I it, remember I said I had you, my whole bit you had, about you, how you had some nice about how say. it was novel, how we were doing novelty oh, songs. Oh, that's again. right. Remember <laughs> my remember my bit. Your bit. I forgot. I'm sorry. Your bit. Yeah, I had a whole goof going on. <laughs> that was good. That was good. You put me Thank on the spot, you. though. I felt a bit nervous. <laughs> so, um, what do you think of California by Low? Um, I thought it was a good song. Oh, good. 
good. I yeah, I liked it. They yes, they have a. I like their harmonies. Ellen Sparhawk and Mimi Parker, the husband and wife team behind Low. This this was their final album with their longtime bass player Zach Sally, who who left the band at this time for a few reasons. One is that he's also a cartoonist, and okay. he he'd bought a printing press and had started like doing his own printing and publishing his own comics. His wife had had a baby, and he, he wanted to be at home more. And right. also, Ellen Sparhawk started having mental health issues. Oh, okay. Which I think put a lot of strain on the group. And, right. And after the album was recorded, he actually was institutionalized for six months. So that didn't help. Interestingly, Sparhawk, who is Mormon, was, was uh, born in San Francisco, in Seattle. Sorry, born in Seattle. Okay. Moved to Minnesota when he was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Met Mimi Parker when he was nine years old. And later married her, which I think is pretty amazing. That is. That's not a story you hear too often. They're still together. They have they have two children. They st- she plays drums in the band and sings. He's a guitarist. And uh, yeah, pretty pretty uh, fun. And so this album was quite controversial at the time, actually, because I think we talked about them before. They were started as sort of a reaction to all the kind of grunge and hardcore sort of sounds that were happening at the time. Right. And so they did their slow thing. They did their slow core. Yeah, they're very slow quiet, so quiet, uh, silent music. But this album was much more rock. And as you can hear from the song, the song has like electric guitars in it and, and they're singing and there's loud drums and everything. And they're kind of pushed that way by David Friedman, who was brought in as producer. And I think Friedman may have even had like a bit of a, a secret agenda from the record company. It was their first their first um, record for, for Sub Pop. And maybe Sub Pop was looking for something you know, that would sell for them, which, you know, you can't blame any label for that. So, but I think also the band were kind of ready to explore different sounds as well. But yeah, I think it's a really good song. Apparently it's about Sparhawk's mother, but no matter what I looked up, I looked up, it's so many different articles and reviews of the album. I could not find anything else other than a, a one mention that it was about his mother. Hmm. Reading the lyrics, I couldn't see, I don't know. So if it is, that's interesting, If but if it's not, Okay, fine. I don't know. I just could not find but, anything where anyone asked my question. So it's about your mother? Tell me about your mother. That's nothing. There wasn't even like recordings of him talking to a psychoanalyst about his mother. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah you'd, think, you'd think that there, that would be on the internet. <laughs> you'd think so. <laughs> you'd think so. But Mary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, Dad. Yeah. I think that Mormons don't really use the internet that much. Is that what it is? Yes. I think they do. I don't know. I don't know where he falls in Mor- Mormonism. I don't know if he's like Orthodox or, or if he's kind of a more liberal Mormon. I, yeah. He changes his underwear. I don't know. I mean, having a band seems like N- not Mormon. Well, not not Mormon, but just like you're forgetting about the Osmonds. Were the Osmonds Mormon? Yeah. Really? Yeah. No, oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Um. But there are so many of them. It's one reason why. Anyway. But you know, because I think um, that using the internet is kind of frowned upon. Really? With, with a lot of Mormons, yes. Okay. Okay. Because it um it has been kind of a can of warm worms for them for the mormon <laughs> church oh really in that yeah and that people have been able to find things about oh, okay mormonism that are not talked about in the yeah like the fact that joseph smith practiced polygamy and like married teenagers and married other men's wives and stuff yeah yeah um yeah, and there's are, like those are not generally empirical talked about. proof like birth records death records marriage records remote certificates yeah you know yeah. there's like all this like f- real physical evidence <laughs> Great. that exists yeah, that's yeah. like hard to hard to get around mm. yeah yes the mormons i don't want to i don't want to make fun of Mormons. it's fine whatever you want to believe folks as long as it doesn't hurt other people sure um 
But Mary, I was going to say that this song is the first of three songs that have a little bit of a of a uh, theme going. Uh, okay. So this song talks about going back to the farm. Yes. Our next song, Karen Dalton, mm-hmm. is called Are You Leaving for the Country? Okay, sure. Which came out in In My Own Time. And then the third song is called Aunt Annie's Place. And if you listen to that song, it also has a kind of a rural setting. Interesting. So I kind of put these three songs together. Right. I'm not too sure why. It's kind of... A little mini theme in, in in on the on the on the mixtape. I don't like to do too much of that though because then it gets really gets too kind of structured and iron and you're kind of locked into something. And it yeah, gets, that's it fair. Gets, it gets kind of boring after a while. You're, all your songs have to be about the same thing. Mm-hmm. I tried to do that one time. I tried to I did make a a, a mixtape that was all sun songs on one side and all rain songs on the other. Oh, okay. But I I found it kind of boring. And maybe if right. I maybe if I could figure a way to program it, it might have been better. But yeah, it just seemed like too much. Yeah, like because you're not putting them together for you're not putting them together because they sound good together. You're yeah. putting them together yeah. because they like fit a theme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And this album it and this mixtape, it kind of it's it kind of breaks rules in some some of the ways of how I like to structure mixtapes. Right. But by this point for sure I was like making the mixtapes, burning them, listening to them in my car while I drove around coming back in, editing stuff out, you know. And I think, personally, I think this mixtape had, like, really great transitions between songs. Mm-hmm. And I really like how it flows. Uh, so I was really happy with this mixtape. I, when I was listening, I listened to it all week while I was, you know, preparing for the show. And, and I really, I like, I listened to it in the car and stuff. And I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed it. What did you think of it as, as a whole? Of this song or the, uh, the, the mix? mixtape, yeah. Uh, I liked it yeah. overall. Like, do you think there was good transitions between songs? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I thought it, I was really happy with it. Yeah, no, I thought it was very good. Well, anyway, so anyway, let's move on now to Karen Dalton, since we mentioned her. And this is, our, as I said, Are You Leading for the Country, which comes from her second and only uh, album recorded in her, well, at least released in her lifetime. There's a couple that came out, posthumous releases, that were recordings of her in, in kind of more, like in her house and stuff like that, that were recorded on like a tape machine. And those are interesting, of course, because it's great, but they're not... It's not like quite the same. It's not in a professional like studio setting like this. This one or or uh, her her first album. It's hard to know who who's going to love you best. Although that album, of course, is famously was secretly recorded. I.e., she was performing without being performing in a studio without being aware that the tape was running. Oh, okay. As they felt that was a way of tricking her into pre- actually performing. She had a lot right. of she had a lot of performance anxiety. Yeah. Hmm. And so uh, it was hard to get her to perform. You really had to like work hard to to get her to perform. So anyway, this is uh, Are You Leaving for the Country from 1971. Here we go, everyone. Are you leaving for the country?
you think of Karen Dalton? I love her voice. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm voice glad you so, love her voice. It's so beautiful. It's like, it's so Trumpet weird. It's, it's very weird, yeah. It's, it's a weird, um, it's like scratchy kind of, mm-hmm. but like not. Yeah. You know what I mean? But she kind of pushes it, so she allows it to crack while she's singing. Yeah. She has. Yeah, like it's. She it's really so uses u- it as an instrument, you know? Right. Yeah, like it doesn't sound like sort of like every other like um woman's singer's voice sounds like you know yeah no uh she well i mean if you're a jazz fan then you you will know billy holiday and and maybe maybe do you even heard billy holiday too much but she she also sang she was a she was a black singer who a jazz singer from the from the 40s 50s who once again kind of sang in a very similar kind of sounding voice and also used her voice as an instrument so i think that um i think that Karen Dalton's interesting because even though she was performing in a folk idiom for, you know, during her career, she played 12-string guitar and banjo. She had a, what was called a long neck banjo. Okay. She, um, she really brought a jazz element to her singing. She's often, she does something where she kind of sings behind the beat a little bit. Oh, okay. Which is really, uh, really jazz, really kind of a jazz uh, style thing to do. So, so yeah, yeah, really I, I'm with you. I, re- I love her voice. I love her voice so much. I think there's like a certain kind of vulnerability to it that that just feels like just like it's like a heartbroken singing style almost. And uh, like even this song, which could be like you could sing this song as like a celebration, of, but whereas her song feels like it's sad, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's weird. totally. Yeah. Um, also, I, I just quickly want to say, sorry if you can hear that dog barking. I can't hear There's a dog, a dog barking. in the yard next door barking at Scout because Scout's on the porch. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's kind of just sitting there staring at this other dog who's barking at her. She's like, what's your deal? <laughs> what's your dealio? So, yeah, like I said, this was Dalton's second album. And it was pr- arranged and produced or co-arranged and produced by a bass player named Harvey Brooks. Dad? Yes. Oh, sorry, I lost you for a second. Oh, okay. You can hear me now, though? Yes. That's good. 
that's strange. I wonder what happened. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry, dear. I'll just repeat what I was saying then. Just so it's fine. It's just not like you to stop talking. So it was. Kind of <laughs> <absurd>. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> you know what they say, dear. The truth what? hurts. It does. So, so yes. So Karen Dalton um, was through uh, through um, through the auspices of Harvey Brooks, who'd played bass with her on her first album. Um, he was a huge fan, and so he basically like convinced the owner or the co- the the guy who ran this label, a guy named Michael Lang, ran a label called uh, Just Sunshine Records. Okay. Uh, Mike, Michael Lang is famous as the guy who who ran Woodstock. He was the person who who um, he didn't fund it. That was funded by two guys who had inherited some money and decided to to um, invested in doing a rock concert. And they hooked up with Michael Lang, and then Michael Lang convinced them that they should do it as like a music and arts festival, an outdoor festival, in a in a rural setting. And he he put together like the bill. He he's the one who hired all the bands. He's the one who who did all like the the grunt work. If you watch the movie Woodstock, um, he's like driving around on a on a motor on a like a dirt bike going from place to place you know getting stuff organized and things uh, so anyway so he came out of woodstock i think with some money in his pocket and so he started this record label and he made a point of signing artists that he liked that weren't necessarily uh great artists i think i was talking a while ago with joanne kelly uh on his label and that was another you know, you know singer fantastic singer who maybe wasn't hugely known still not hugely known i'd say Maybe in blues aficionado circles, but definitely in British blues aficionado circles because she was British. But here in the States, didn't really have much crossover success. And the same with Karen Dalton, you know, to someone who Harry Brooks comes to him and says, you, you know, you really, you know, Karen, you know, we should do an album. Like, she's, you know, she's so great and there's, there's nothing out there of, of her work. And so they they um, did this album. I think she got a $15,000 advance. That record cost $40,000 to make. I don't, I think it made back at least the advance to her, but I don't think it made back anything more than that. Uh, to make her comfortable, they they um they brought she brought her kids with her. Her uh, brought two of her kids. Mm-hmm. One one of her kids was named uh, Lee, and the other daughter was named Aberlin or Abby. Her Ab- do- Aberlin. Aberlin, yeah. Okay. Uh, they brought her dog Shalom, which was a poodle Chihuahua cross. Shalom. And her horse from Oklahoma. Whoa. Uh, in the in the uh, I was the reason I know the names is because of I was reading the promotional material in the CD. And mm-hmm. it says uh, the horse who shall remain nameless. So I guess I didn't know the horse name, but they brought her horse from Oklahoma as well because it was it was recorded in Woodstock, which is a rural area in upstate New York. And so there's room there. Like if you look on the cover of the CD, there's an uh, image of her walking along a, a road with a with a farm in the back, with like an old farm or old barn in the background. And you're like, oh, that is the country for sure. And so yeah, so she brought a horse with her, and that and they had a very relaxed recording situation where Harvey Brooks would kind of push her but not push her too much because she did not react well to to force or to to pressure so you know it's more of encouragement with a little bit of uh uh a little bit of of um what do you call it tough love to get her to to commit to songs and to 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 work on stuff um yeah there's a she does a great version of 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 a song called um called this old man i believe it's called which sounds i, I don't want to say it's this old man for sure because then it makes it sound like it's the same old man you know that one? Same right. old man sitting by the You know that one? Yes. Uh, which yep. Which was, she does a, a, the arrangement that Steve Weber arranged, uh, did on the first uh, Holy Metal Rounders album. So he gets a, he gets an arrangement credit on the on that song, on the album. It's a great song anyway. Uh, written by her former, I don't know if they were married. Definitely, they lived together. She definitely had a kid with him, a guy named Richard Tucker. They sang together. He wrote this song. They lived together in Colorado, and she lived in Colorado and performed there. 
And then she left him and, and moved to, to Greenwich Village and kind of continued her career in Greenwich Village. So there we go, everyone. Karen Dalton. Well, I think we talked quite a bit about her when we played a song by her before we played uh, another song from this album, um, the fantastic song, Something on Your Mind, which was written by Dino Valen, which is a very good song. In fact, mm-hmm. he wrote... Yeah. Karen Dalton is such a good singer. Yeah. I love her. So we mentioned Aunt Annie's Place. So let's move on to Aunt Annie's Place. Now, this is by Kid Rock, not... Not that Kid Rock, Not that Kid Rock. I know who you're thinking of. (laughs) And that guy, that guy can take a leap into a garbage can, as far as I'm concerned. No, this is the original (laughs) and best Kid Rock uh, with the song Aunt Annie's Place. So this song was never released um, in its day. The version that we're listening to is from a fabulous pop psych collection called Circus Days Pop Psych Obscurities, 1966 to 1972, that came out in 2010, which I would normally say you should get, but it was released. I didn't realize this. It was only a thousand were released when they issued it in 2010. So I was lucky enough to get it then because I was an, I'm a nut. But um, anyway, this is this is Aunt Annie's place. Let's give it a listen.
Sorry, Mary, what did you think of Aunt Annie's place? Um, what did I think of Aunt Annie's place? I thought it was a pretty sweet song. It okay. was I thought it was cute and I I like listening to it. That's good. In some ways it it makes me think of of Granny's place. <laughs> of of right. the farm. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that I like about it. It has that kind of feeling. And uh yeah, we talked about Kid Rock before because we played his demented song. Because we I... talked about that time that he got in a fight with someone at a Waffle House. <laughs> I don't know. What is that? No, that's the other Kid Rock. Oh, the one who can go, go jump in a lake? Yeah, yeah no, the one not... who can go jump in a garbage can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was he was arrested and charged with assault for fighting with a Waffle House customer. What? Like, yeah. not when he was young, but like 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 now Kid Rock? Like famous Kid Rock? Um, In 2007. Wow, that's silly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, this is the better Kid Rock. This is oh, right. this was a this was a project put together by a guy named uh, so he was a songwriter named Tony Taylor. I remember we played on uh, during the novelty songs. We played Ice Cream Man, that crazy song Ice Cream Man. Yes, yeah. Coming down the road ex- like a giant toad. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because I remember that we had talked about Kid Rock. Yeah. But not that Kid Rock. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 So this is from the same project that he was trying to put together. Uh, which would have been like an album of children's songs. There, there was three singles released from it on on Youngblood Records, but this this song was never issued at the time. So it was kind of like an orphan track that never that never got to see the light of day until it was it was finally uh, put out on this on this collection. So it is a real obscurity, but I really like this song a lot. I think it's really beautiful. Um, it's a bit late to be considered psych uh, pop psych since it comes from like the 74. But in terms right. of like sound, it really does fit into that genre. So so I guess I'll let it go. It's kind of like a late, a revival pop psych song, I could call it. But it certainly is sweet. It's a sweet little track. And and, and that kind of ends our our country trilogy. Let's call it that. The country trilogy. That right. Not country music, though. Just no like country music. No, no. Country just, themed. It's like country, yeah, farm, a rural theme. Farms, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. Although, I don't know, maybe the next song is... I don't know. I can't really. I don't really know what the lyrics are to this song, <laughs> so I don't know if this song is also country themed. It has like a kind of. It feels more kind of rural. This song is like as close as you're ever gonna get from me to a, like a Springsteen sound. This song, like I am not a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I really like. I really really like the song Rosalita from the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. Like I think that song is great, but I I don't really like. I don't really like any other songs by him that much. I don't like. I'm not a fan of Born to Run. Or the river, even though the turtles sing on it, or um, born in the USA, like okay. like I'm not, a, I don't know, I've just never been a huge Springsteen fan. Saying that, I have all his mm-hmm. records. I even have his his like five disc live collection, five right. five album live collection. So you really wanted to like Bruce Springsteen? I really wanted to like him because I feel like you know he's so seminal. He's like a big he's like a big deal in American music history. But I just cannot get into him. I don't know what it is. I feel like. And I'm gonna whisper this, so don't 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 spread this around, everyone. Okay. But I think he's a bit of a phony. <gasps> I don't know. Bruce Springsteen. I I don't think that he is quite the car loving, you know, driving into the di- distance, living on the living in the darkness on the edge of town kind of guy. I don't think that's him as a person. I think that's right. like a persona that he plays on record, which I think is okay to have a persona on albums, but I don't think it's okay to continue that persona into your real life right and pretend that's who you are you know like randy newman plays personas on all his songs that he writes Mm -hmm. but in real life he's just you know kind of a dweeby jewish guy he doesn't pretend to be doesn't pretend to be anything else so i don't i don't know i don't know if that's what bothers me but i don't know what i don't know what it is i really don't know i I never really i didn't 
didn't rate him as a kid. Like I didn't like when the like when I started listening to to radio when I was a teenager. Like the river came out and it was like a big deal on the radio because it was like the new Bruce Springsteen album and blah 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 and everyone's excited and I was hearing about all excitement and the DJs were playing it with great elation and I was kind of like, eh, it's okay. It's no, it's no Peter Gabriel games people play. I'll tell you that right now. Right. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a weirdo. Probably. Anyway, having said all that, <laughs> that <laughs> prelude to this is by a band called Mara or Mara. So. Wait, hold on. So yeah. we're not listening to a song by Bruce Springsteen? We're not listening to a song by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, okay. We're going to listen to Mera uh-huh. and their song East, which comes from their 2003 album, 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, which is lit different than 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right. Which is, if you're curious what that is, you can see it on Prime. I'm sorry, on Disney+. Plus. All right. So here we go, everyone. This is uh, East by Mera.
Hey, Mare. You know what I like to do when we come back from a song. I like to ask you what Is you thought it of it. Asking me what I thought of the song? Yeah. Um, I thought this song was pretty meh. <laughs> Is that right? I didn't love it. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. I don't know if I love it, but I think it's a pretty good song. And I, I really like the, um, the almost like a Mellotron kind of sound of the flute song part of the song. That's what really makes the song for me. Mm, is yeah, the I, is the flute part in it or flute like right. part to the song? Yeah, I also like I the singer's voice. Like, I like the singer's okay. voice. Yeah, I like that kind of rough and ready singing style. Right. And sorry, what year was the song from again? Two thousand three. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so the reason I like when I hear the song, when I was listening to the song when, when I was driving, I was like, I was thinking to myself, boy, this song really does have like a kind of spring sound, spring scene kind of sound to it. Like, hmm. you know, that kind of like American, you know. I don't know how to call it. There's kind of a this a sound to it that makes me think of just Bruce like that, like roots, you know, roots rock. Apple let's call it. pie and yeah. I don't know about apple pie, but this is a kind of roots pop, <laughs> roots rock kind of thing, I guess. Okay. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but anyway. I was just trying to think of very American things like apple pie. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. It's uh, the their name. I don't know if you knew this, Mary, but their name Mera is is actually from the Bible. It's a place that the um, Israelites passed through during their their exodus. Oh, interesting. It means like the place of bitter water is what it means. There's like a kind of a bit of story in the Bible about it. But also, um, yeah. And so what's interesting, when I was looking up about them, I discovered that on their album before this one, Springsteen played guitar and sang a song with them on it. So he obviously recognized their, their being fellow travelers in, in a similar sound. But also interestingly, they worked with uh, an author that, I don't know if you like her, Mary, but Sarah Vowell. Do you know Sarah Vowell? Sarah Vowell. I recognize the name, but I can't think of any songs by her. No, she's not a singer. She's a writer. She's does, oh. she's an NPR. She does stuff on NPR, and she she writes uh, kind of um, history books. So she wrote a book about like the Puritans coming to America, or one called Assassination Vacation, where she traveled to various places where presidents had been assassinated. Interesting. Um, and she also provided the voice of the daughter in The Incredibles. Okay. Yes. Um. She. I think I recognize her name from her work on This American Life. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, she has kind of a distinctive voice. And that's, I guess, Brad Bird heard her voice and thought she'd be great as the daughter. So he hired her to play that character. Cool. Uh, yeah, and they contrib- they worked together on a song called Christmas at Valley Forge. She she did uh, a story about, or, you know, did a kind of thing about it. Anyway, yeah, so I, I don't know. Sorry you didn't like it. I thought it was pretty good. Maybe it's a good resting place for you in this. Right. The last, the last songs you've liked all of them. So you needed like a song to kind of go, meh, because you do need you do need a couple of s songs in a on a in any kind of situation because it kind of gives a little bit of up and up you know a little bit of you know if everything's great nothing's great right that's the philosophical conundrum right if everything right. is something then everything is also nothing yes so if every every song is great then they're all they all come down in your mind mm-hmm. so this song what this song did was like make the last song seem better than it was and the next song better than it is right. Right. Yes, I get that. It's like a palate cleanser. Exactly. Of. Exactly. So speaking of the next song, Mary, mm-hmm. let's listen to Lime and Sibel and their song Follow Me that came out in 1966. Here we go, everyone.
Okay, and we're back, everyone. That was Follow Me by Lime and Sabelle and Mary. What did you think of this song? I liked the song. I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's yeah, good. it's a fun song. Yeah, it's pretty simple, but it's it's really great. Like, it's kind of a simple song, but their mm-hmm. voices blend really well in the song. I really like it. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, really fun. So Lime and Sabelle were actually Warren Zevon and a lady named Violet Sant'Angelo. Okay. And I'm sure you know who Warren Zevon is, Mary. He's, nope. He's very famous. And you may have heard a little song called Werewolves of London on Mixtape when you were growing up. Oh, yes. That is Warren Zevon. Yes. Um, so, yeah, in, in the early 60s, he and Violet were two high school friends who I found they had a similar taste in music and liked to play and liked to, liked to perform songs and stuff like that. And so they, they put together a duo and Warren Zevon called himself David Lime because that way everyone would think they were British, right? Right, of course. So Lime spelled L-Y-M-E. Mm-hmm. And then San Angelo chose the name Sibel uh, after a 1962 French film called Sundays and Sibel. Hmm. And so they became this sort of more mysterious sounding group rather than their own names. And through happenstance, the pair were signed to White Whale Records, the Los Angeles-based record company that... Uh, had as their most famous artist on the roster, the Turtles. Uh, one of their friends, who happened to hear them playing together at a party, th- this friend's mother worked at Whitewell Records, and so they got them a chance to record a single for Whitewell Records. And so they did this song, which they both had composed together, and also another song called um, Like the Seasons, which they also had written together. And the song was produced by Bones Howe, which is pretty great, because Howe was already... A well-known producer, he was working with. We've the, talked about him before. Yeah, he perform, he produced the Association. He produced uh, "Come right. On In," right? Yes, which is a song that we both love so much. And he also mm-hmm. worked. He also worked with uh, the Fifth Dimension as well. Okay. So he was he produced like their "Up and Up, up, up and Away" album and right. their their great album, "The Magic Garden," which is kind of like a song suite put together by Jimmy Webb, which is a great album. And yeah, and so the single was. Modestly successful. It reached number 65 on the Billboard chart, which is pretty good for a couple of kids just starting out. But rather than follow up the success with an album to cash in on this whole thing, White Whale did the dumbest thing the record companies did at this time, which is to insist on another single. And, you know, then if this single is a success, then we'll do an album. Rather than do an album and then pull singles from it, which was much smarter, they, they did it this way, which is so silly. And then to further uh, compound the error... Rather than let Zevon and San Angelo come up with their own material, which they had done for the first song, which was successful, they insisted that they do a Bob Dylan song. So they did this song called If You Gotta Go, Go Now. Uh, once again, and it's the same thing the Turtles had to do. They had to do uh, It Ain't It Ain't Me, it Ain't Me Babe, um, which they had a hit with. But but I think that that was a year before this, the, before what Lyman Spell were doing. And so Lyman Spell were kind of like behind the trend. You know what I mean? So people are already over Bob Dylan folk rock versions of Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And so, and then also uh, a DJ uh, accused the song of having sexual connotations and that further reduced their airplay. So right. you know, it became kind of poison and so no one was playing it. And so, so that was a, that label, that song, that single was a flopperoo. And then uh, Zevon left the group. Some people. He no, left the duo? He left the duo. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, San Angelo has said that she left. He wasn't the one who left, but that she left because she grew tired of his excessive drug use and 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 uh, and drinking, which he's quite famous for that. So that's possibility, right? But who knows for sure? So anyway, he left. So 
that could have been the end of Lyman Sabelle, but no, the label brought in a uh, a guy named, or or at least a new Lyman was recruited, a guy named a guitarist who played on sessions for the Monkees named Wayne Irwin came in, and so he provided the next two songs. He wrote the next two songs uh, for their final single, which was produced by Kurt Betcher, who we've also talked about, of course. We did a little Kurt Betcher documentary a little while ago. Yes, we did. Mini doc. And uh, so this single was not a success. So then Irwin then fired Sant'Angelo. So Sibel was fired from her own group. And I think, I guess the consequence of this, she left the music business, maybe feeling like it wasn't the place for her. But don't worry. She later became a very successful Broadway actress. Under, oh, good. Under the name Laura Kenyon. Laura Kenyon. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, Warren Zevon, of course, as I said, he went on. He went on to success. He, in the '60s, he had some songwriting success. He had a song covered, a couple songs with the Turtles. One being uh, "The Grim Reaper of Love," another being "Outside Chance." And then uh, he had a song on the. He had a song on the. Um, and more, more importantly, one of his songs was a B-side to the Turtles' version of "Happy Together." So you can imagine that he had some nice songwriting royalties from that. Oh my gosh! Yes. And then he had a he had a song which was originally called She Quit Me, but it was recorded as He Quit Me because it was sung by a woman in the Midnight Cowboy so- on the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. So that oh, was pretty okay. good too. So that was some good which money is, there. as we know, is a, a movie that you love. Midnight Cowboy? Oh yeah. no, you're thinking of Drugstore Cowboy. Oh, I am thinking of Drugstore Cowboy. I did mix it up. I did say Midnight Cowboy and then I've corrected myself. So that might mix you up. But yes, I do like Midnight Cowboy a lot, but it's, it's no drugstore cowboy, I'll put it it's that way. It's not worth ruining a friendship over. It's not worth ruining a, a friendship like over. Like drugstore cowboy is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Mary, please don't rub that in. I feel bad enough about oh, it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I'm just joking. I do feel bad, though. I really do. Um, no, I know. So then so then he did an album for the uh, for Kim Fowley, famous bad boy of music, Kim Fowley. And then uh, that wasn't a success. So then he spent some a few years as musical director and keyboardist for the Everly Brothers. Even when they split up in the in the early seventies, he like was musical director and keyboardist for both of them as they tried to launch solo careers. And then he finally like you know finally had like his big break in seventy six, a full uh all, like almost ten years after Follow Me. Well, it was ten years after Follow Me. That was sixty six. Um, in seventy six, he put out an album called Warren Zevon. And that kind of finally got brought him some attention. And Warren Zevon and then Excitable Boy, which contained Werewolves of London, that was kind of like the beginning of his second, beginning of his second part of his career, I guess you could say. And uh, he, you know, he had like Linda Ronstadt covering his songs like Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. And, you know, he was like on top of the world. But then he threw it all away for drinking and drugging. So Uh, it's not uncommon, I guess. Not uncommon. It's too bad. But there you go. And Mary, before we go into the next song. Yes. I I wanted to play um, song seven. Which was the final, the the A side of the final single that um, they produced, and I, I'm going to play it and I'm just going to talk about it. I don't think it's a great song, but I think it's interesting. It's Kurt Betcher production, so it you know it's got to be good at least in that way. And uh, it comes from my I have a collection called the Complete Singles of Kurt Betcher, which has all the singles that he produced in his career on it, including his later disco 12 inch versions of of Beach Boys songs. <laughs> uh, but uh, so those are those kind of make you grit your teeth, but but we have uh, we have this uh, song we'll play first. This is song seven from the Lyman Sabell Mark II. Here we go, everyone. <laughs> When 
I think is okay but I think it the problem with it as a Lyman Sabelle song is that they change the format that works so well with Follow Me which is the unison singing of the two two singers so basically in, in song seven Sabelle just becomes a background like a backing vocalist basically right like she which, just, they yeah, do trade not... off they do trade off vocal parts but they don't sing together the same way mm-hmm. I don't think it works as well yeah I mean the other thing is it's not um, as good a song live. it's not live. that's right yeah yeah song right yeah, so like they yeah. really didn't have the same relationship yeah and i imagine someone from like a more popular band coming in and replacing that person um yeah well i mean i mean you know, sidelining but wayne Irwin wasn't from a popular band he was a studio session player like he did play with he did play with the monkeys but he didn't play with them right, as a monkey he was, he's not no but he was you know of the monkeys okay right sure. let's like yeah he would have been known though no sure like he would have had like a name. People would have said, "Oh, Wayne Irwin." <laughs> right. But no. but I mean, like, just in terms of like their oh, their chemistry sort of or like, like or their or, yeah, yeah yeah like sort of like the dynamics in that. Sure, that's a good word. Yeah, right? dynamics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah. see what you mean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. He would have. I mean, obviously, he felt that way because he fired her from her <laughs> her own group, her own band, which is <laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, a real dick move. Yeah, Let's put it that way. So, Mary, let us move on to a happier thing which is me getting to play a field music song. Oh, that is a happy thing. We've learned, if we've learned one thing during this mixtape. Uh, and that is like tapes, you're obsessed with field music. I was at that time apparently obsessed with field music. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. But I do like them a lot, especially these, especially the music from this time period of the, of the group. So um, this is from their third album, which is called Field Music. And it was released in 2010. And this song is called Them That Do Nothing. And I think this song has a great little message too. So if you listen to the lyrics of this song, you will get a message. So let's give it a listen.
So far, I'm going to say that you have been, at best, equivocal about about field music. At worst, mm-hmm. on the, the no side. Right. So I'm curious what you thought of this song. I like the song. <gasps> oh, boy. You like the field music song. Oh, that's great. I did. Oh, I didn't good. actually recognize that it was field music, which oh. is funny, cause I usually do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, because I say it was pretty typical sound of this time period for them. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's funny. No, like definitely, I can, I can now that I know, I'm like, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, so this was from their third album, which was their first album after their two year hiatus. Um, so they did field music, their first album, field music. Then they did their second album, Tones of Town. Then they did their third album, which is field music, and that's this album. So this album is often called Measure because as a way to different, differentiate it from their first from the first album, which is called Field Music as well. They did a real, they pulled a real Brazilian, that's what I'll say. Having the same, having two albums with the same name, just a real, real oh, Brazilian. Okay. Right. Uh, so yeah, they reformed after after their layoff. So during the break, they, they both released albums, 
both brothers, David Brewis released an album as School of Language, and Peter Brewis released an album as That Was the Week That Was. And then after that, they came back together, and they did this album, and they, for whatever reason, even though they'd been off, they'd been off for two years, so you think, oh, well, you know, they've been away for a while, of course they're going to have a song stockpile. But at the same time, they both released albums, so they used songs for those two albums. But no, they still came back and did a double album. So um, it's not a super long album. It's 20 songs long. And some of the length of it comes from the fact that one song is really long. And, and it's it's just like sound effects. That it sounds like a train station. Right. So it's like like seven minutes of like train station noises. So I don't know. To be honest with you, when I put this album on, and I put this album in my iTunes, that song on. But um, okay. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're listening to like a mix of songs on shuffle, you don't want to hear a seven minute song song with like train train station sounds. That's fair. Yeah, it's just a feeling. That's just a feeling I have about train station sounds. Yep. Pretty. I know it's a controversial opinion, but mm-hmm. yes, I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna definitely. state I'm gonna make that statement, and anyone who disagrees can fight me. Fight me about it, but don't threaten to punch me in the head, please. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So. Also, please wait until social distancing because <laughs> it's very hard to fight while also being six feet away. Yeah, that's right. We'll have to have boxing gloves on sticks. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So there you go. That's field music. I'm glad you liked it, Mary. And yeah, it's funny. It. It's kind of funny because we have field music commonly heard during during this series of uh, big tapes, mm-hmm. followed by another and band. The next song is. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the next song, Mary? You can you can say it. The next song or is the next, the next band. Anyway. The next band yeah. is Sloan. Yes. With their song "Can't You Figure It Out." That's right. From. Uh, Never hear the. Uh, <laughs> Don't say ah. Uh. It's from. If you were quiet, we could. From uh, Never Hear the End of It from 2006. There you go. Here's a little podcasting tip for you, Mary. If you're silent, the truncate silence will take away your your pause. It'll sound like you knew it right away. Right, but if I leave it in, then it's yeah. funnier. <laughs> All right. So that's what's also amusing to me is that this is our second double album in a row. Never hear the end of it is a double album and, and uh, measure with a double album or field music. Oh, yeah. Album. So here we go. So this is. Never hear the end of it sure is a double album. Oh, yeah. You will never hear the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Can't You Figure It Out, everyone. Let's give it a listen. Reluctantly reliving the past Well I have 
So that was Sloan with their song Can't You Figure It Out from 2006 from their double double from their double album. Yeah. Never hear the end of it. And this and that, that album pushes the limits. That album really does push the limits. It's, it's quite a long album. It's 78 minutes long. Oof. It's, it's 30 songs. Oof. It's a lot of songs. But to be fair to them, mm-hmm. I believe... Oh, I have to look it up. What a, cool, what a cool looking bird. Yeah. Okay. But to be fair to Sloan, the Beatles album, The Beatles, or AKA The White Album, also has 30 songs on it. So it's not unheard okay. of. Yeah. So it's not unheard of to have, you know, album with a lot of songs. The, yeah. So it's... Uh, it's uh, yeah, because I think, but I think the Beatles one is a little shorter than. But that's just a difference. In, well, maybe I don't know. I can't can't say for sure. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's longer. It's a longer album. It's uh, because if you're gonna put if you're gonna put the White Album on a tape cassette, a forty five minute each side tape cassette, it will fit on perfectly if you leave off Revolution Nine. So it's it's over. It's over ninety minutes long, and the Sloan one is only seventy eight. It's more. It has a lot of songs, but there are, there's a lot of lot of lot of short songs on it as well. So it does. But you know, because of Sloan, who they are, kind of like the Beatles, you had four songwriters writing songs. I mean, to be fair, the Beatles only had like three really great songwriters, and then Ringo was pretty good. Like you know, but his with his one song on the album. But mm-hmm. but for Sloan, I mean, they had four like, really great songwriters. Yeah, strong songwriters writing, and. And what, you know the way it kind of came about was so they did Action Pact P A C T haha mm-hmm. in in 2003, and the way they did that album was it was kind of meant as a way to break into the states. That was kind of the idea behind the album. Oh okay. So they hired they basically hired like they brought in a producer Tom Rothrock who was like a super well known producer, and by this point they weren't really using producers. They basically self produced. So but they right. they went in with the idea they were going to get a producer and we're going to produce an album that's going to like kind of streamline our sound and get like a kind of rock and we're going to be radio friendly american radio, radio friendly right so tom rothrock came in with the stipulation that he would he and only he would decide what was going to be on the album what wasn't and so you know he chose all the songs that he wanted on the album there's no andrew scott songs on the album now whether mm-hmm. that was a choice by tom rothrock that he didn't want like andrew scott's kind of weirder sort of art rock songs or yeah. also andrew scott had just had a baby with his with his wife and mm-hmm. so that also kind of took away time that he had for 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 uh getting stuff ready for the album so maybe he wasn't prepared at that time to put songs on it's, it's hard to know if he sat it out or if he was left out and then after they did action packed which was very kind of a short sharp album mm-hmm. they did a sides win a sides wins yeah. which was their greatest hits album so and so mm-hmm. that that came out in 2005 so now there's a two-year break between action packed and that and so then never hear the end of it came out in 2006 so they had quite a few songs stockpiled they just hadn't been doing, you know, new albums or anything. Right. So they kind of came in with like a big backlog of songs. And what was really great at that time is that on their website, they had a bunch of, of short videos of them recording the album. So it'd be like little interview sections or segments showing them recording songs, singing songs together, showing them in their recording space, which is they, what they do is they, they rent warehouse space in Toronto and they... They it's their practice space, the rehearsal space, but also where they record songs. They have like a little studio set up in there with mm-hmm. microphones, and and they have it all set up, and they just record everything in there. So it's really kind of a smart way to do it. They don't have to pay for studio time; they just record in their own studio. And but yeah, it was a lot of fun to watch them recording it. And then when it came out, I was really excited. But yeah, so good song, Jay a Jay Ferguson song. So I figured it out too. Um, so the writer of the song, Jay Jay Ferguson, yes. uh, contributed five songs to the album. Andrew Scott provided four songs. To, sorry, to never hear the end of it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, sorry. Eight songs. Yeah. Eight songs. Uh, so Jay did seven. 
Jay did 12 songs. On no, no, no. Every Year the End of It? Sorry, Jay only did five songs on it. No, Jay did seven. How do you get seven? Oh, no, no, sorry. He did six. And, but the sixth song is when they all wrote. There's one song that's a co-write yeah, between all four again. of them. Yeah, everyone did. So, so I'm not counting that so song. So you're not counting that I'm one. not counting that song. So five songs from Jay, eight songs okay. from Andrew, four songs mm-hmm. from Patrick, and 12 songs from Chris, the music machine, as I call him. Chris, music machine. Yeah. And then, and then one song, which is a co-write. So that was 30 songs. Yeah. And so you said how many songs from Patrick? Six? Uh, Patrick was four. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know I did what you did. And doing. then <laughs> he did do... Yeah. I mean, there's also two bonus tracks okay. available through iTunes, and yeah, um, Patrick yeah. did both of those. I know. I didn't realize those were things. I'm going to have to go on iTunes and look and see what's available from, from Sloan in terms of downloads. Yeah, I feel like there's never... often extra songs available on, like, Japanese releases. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for and, them, yeah, yeah. Um, other and... other little little thingies, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, like... Because um... there's Hit and Run, which I don't own, which is, like, a four-song EP that was only vi- available digitally. Right. Which... I'm so mad that it's only available digitally. I never, never bought it, but I guess I'll have to break down because obviously never going to come out in a physical way. Yeah. So, ah, it's so hard to buy music nowadays because like CDs are are hardly available now. Like you can get. Um, I don't want to buy uh, records. Vinyl yeah, I don't want to buy records. What? But how much is the vinyl? It's like probably twenty dollars. I don't know. Like I don't know. It just seems so weird to buy. Uh, like I was. I'm gonna be honest, folks. I was happy when CDs came in. I did not miss records when CDs became a thing. I thought CDs were way better than records. Like it's more convenient format. They uh-huh. they last longer. You know, properly uh-huh. cared for. They don't degrade the way records do through play. Uh-huh. Um, the popularity of CDs allowed for like a a re re reissuing of tons of artists who uh, their records had disappeared. You know, like there's tons of artists. Like when I was growing up, you couldn't buy. Like if you wanted to buy a Birds album, you could only buy like their greatest hits record. They didn't have their other records available at that time. Huh. Same with the Monkees. You can buy any Monkees records, just greatest hits. So when CDs came in, suddenly there's reissues of their albums. There's reissues. There's the box sets, of course. These curated mm-hmm. collections of of you know stuff that you hadn't heard before. There's lots of great things around the. Just one second. I think my my headphone uh, cord was hanging on my mic my mic stand. Um, uh-huh. There is yeah. There was this time you know. Like th- those are great, and now it feels like they're still reissuing stuff, but it's coming out in records. It's coming out in, with forty dollar price tags, and it just feels it's so expensive. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I I don't like the idea of of only having digital um um digital versions, of things. you know, digital versions. Yeah, like because I like the artifact. I like having the the CD with the booklet and and all that stuff. I just love that as a format. I I, I don't understand why it's disappearing. It's really sad. Anyway. Anyway, enough of that. But yes, I will have to check on iTunes or wherever to, to get these things, I suppose. I'm going to have to give up. So wait, I have a question for you, Dad. Okay. Um, how did Action Pact do in the States? Not very well. Did, be- oh, did better in sad. Canada. And what's hilarious to me is they did this They did this thing as a, you know, as a way to like come onto the, the, the American market. Mm-hmm. Then their single they release, which was um, that one, you know, Rest of My Life. Yes. Very what's, good song. Yeah. What's the main part of it? If, oh, about how he wants to live in Canada? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How's that going to fly in the States? So it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. I don't know what they were thinking there, but it is a good song. But there's other good songs in there that could have been big hits. I mean, I love uh, Jay's uh, False Alarm and, or Fire Alarm. Give Me That is great. Give you, what's that? Give Me Back? Give Me That. Give Me That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of good songs in there. So yeah, they could have chosen other songs, but... But anyway, but I, that was a good, it was a good single, but it's kind of funny. The rest of my life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic song. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let us 
do one more one more little thing. Mary, what's another band I play a lot when I'm... I don't know. Give me a hint. Are they perhaps Canadian? They're perhaps Canadian. Are they perhaps, real, are they perhaps a friend of Sloan? They are friends of Sloan. It would even say a client uh, or a... Um, how do you say? Not client, but part of the stable, Sloan, Sloan stable of artists when they had, when for their murder mm-hmm. records imprint. Murder records and friends of Sloan, their, their little TV program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Special. Yeah. Um, Hmm. Perhaps local rabbits. Oh yes. There's another group oh. that I could not resist promoting while I was making these mixtapes to people. It's kind of like, listen, I mean, to be fair, like, yeah. To be fair, Dad. Yeah. Um, every single person that you sent this mix to. Yeah. And every single person who is listening to this. Yeah. They are not going to hear local rabbits any other way. <laughs> no, that's true. There's no way to hear local rabbits. Or sl- or Sloan, really, to be fair, or Sloan in most cases. No, no, no. Sloan, you can access on Spotify. Sloan, you can access on YouTube. Oh, okay. Okay. You have to hear about it. Yeah. But then you get it. Local but you can, rabbits. You can access local rabbits it. on 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 YouTube. There, there's like three songs of theirs on YouTube. Okay. There's three songs. There's one song of theirs on Spotify. What song? It's not a good song. Or it's not like not a bad song, but it's not a song that I would. Yeah. Like if I was gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna put one local rabbit song on Spotify. Yeah. Um, so that I can like get people to like local rabbits. Yeah. Like I just wouldn't have picked. Um, Is it 41 days? Play oh, play on. What? Oh, play on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Although basic concept is kind of well known as like they're kind of like considered by a lot of people as their pinnacle, which is strange because I think it's too much of a fall between the stools between the raucousness of of you can't touch this and then the kind of more smooth studio sound of of uh, their final one. Uh, never, what's the what's the final one called again? What? Oh, the um, final the the final local rabbits album. Yeah, yeah. This is it. Here we go. Yeah, this is it. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, because right. basic, basic concept to me feels like it kind of falls between those two stools, not in a happy way too. I mean, there's lot, lots of songs in there I like though, so I can't, I'm not going to criticize it. It's, a, it's still a good album. But anyway, let's listen to Local Rabbits. Mary's Sorry, right. Local Rabbits is the answer. Okay. Can I say okay. one quick thing? Yeah. So the um, the Local Rabbit song that's on Spotify, it's on there through a, like a um, compilation album Oh, okay. called Have Not Been the Same. The Can Rock Res- Renaissance, nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety five. Did you say nineteen ninety five to nineteen ninety five? I said nineteen eighty five. Oh, 1995. sorry. <laughs> I may have said nineteen ninety five. I'm pretty sure I said nineteen eighty five. Okay, I, I just it just the the nineteen ninety five obviously stuck in my mind for some reason. Um, yeah, that's, that's fair. Eighty five to ninety five. Okay, have not been the same. So that's you... slow. Slow is on there, of course. That's their song. Have not been the slow same. Slow is on there. Yes. It's a good album. Great album. Great album. We. Uh, yeah, our fr- friends of Sneaky Dragon, Stephen Hamm and Terry Russell, from uh, formerly from the podcast, What You Gonna Do, uh, were, of course, drummer and bassist in Slow, so we'll consider them mm-hmm. friends of the show. Yeah, so, okay, so yeah, it's got Slow. Um, and also, I went to the Wikipedia page for Slow Yeah. for no reason. Yeah. Um, and did you know that Stephen Hamm and Terry Russell were previously in a West Point Grey punk band called Chuck and the Fox? Yes, I did know that. And they played an infamous concert at Queen Mary Elementary in the spring of 1980, where many of the teachers forced the children to leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who would... Did they not hear the name of the band? When they... they probably did not tell them their name when they when they, when okay. they booked the gig. No, no Fun played at a few elementary schools in their day. Oh, did they? When they're, in a, when they're a full band, yeah. Interesting. There's some rec- recordings of them. Do you want to... 
Do you want to guess some of these other can rock renaissance 1985 to 1995 bands? Um, the Rheostatics? Mm, no. Oh, Sloan? Yes. Okay, I'm going to guess the Sloan song was, is it Underwhelmed? I can't actually, I don't know how to see the actual Oh, okay, like, album. okay, that's fine. I guess I could look it up, but I just have a list. I just have like the cover. Oh, okay. okay. That has the names of all the bands. Oh, I see. Okay, so Local Rabbits, you said. Um, yeah. So uh, what else would it be for that time period? Uh, it's not really uh, Big Sugar? The Tea Party? No, no to the Tea Party. The Weaker Thans? No. The Heavy Blinkers? Nope. Even Bands I Like aren't on there. <laughs> um, let's see. Who else would might make? Sarah McLaughlin? Nope. Okay, that's good. Um, that's do you say that's good? Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's actually a book. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, so they're covering different. So it's just a bunch of people named on the front of the book. I, uh, guess. I see. Cub. Nope. Meow. Nope. Hmm. I can't imagine who. Okay, here's who is on this. Okay. So slow. Yeah. Poisoned. Okay. No means no. Oh, okay. See, these, a lot of these groups are before '85. Like, no means no. The album first album came out in like. 82 or 83 I, I saw them in i saw them in 84 at ubc performing okay because we were doing no maybe it was 86 that i saw them no no no. i saw them before that because we i did anyway it doesn't matter go on okay um nils neil n-i-l-s okay uh doughboys don't know i don't know the nils or the doughboys but okay okay rational youth okay the pursuit of happiness okay junior gone wild Never heard of them. Weeping Tile. Never heard of them. Local Rabbits. Never heard of them. Who gets a corner. They get a corner um, block, which is nice. Uh, Bob Wiseman. Okay. Jail. J-A-L-E. Halifax Band. The lead singer of Jail sings with uh, Patrick on uh, that final song on on Twice Removed. Oh, really? Yeah. You you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but you know the one. Yeah. Um, And then Sloan. Good. And then Grapes of Wrath. Another local band. 13 Engines. 13 Engines, okay. Don't know Crash that. Vegas. Heard of them. Sky Diggers. Oh, yeah. Manitoba a, Band. A Neon Rome. Mm. Change of Heart. Okay. Hunger Project. And it's really getting obscure to me. And Jane Siberry. Jane Siberry. Oh, yeah, she's really good. Jane Siberry. She's kind of like Canada's own Kate Bush. Oh, okay. Did a great great album called Mimi on the Beach. Yeah. No, that's uh, cool. Yeah, there's some groups in there that I'm quite fond of and there's others i never heard of and some i don't like poison were great poison was uh art bergman and and they did a great song called ventura freeway or ventura highway uh it was okay. a cassette tape that came out and i of course i didn't buy it when i when i was a kid because i couldn't afford anything but but um yeah i always wish i did because i really like that song I, I look for it all the time on in various sneaky ways but i've never been able to find it interesting oh, can wait, you send sorry. me the link for that book i can i found i also found the track listing okay so that's okay. Slow, oh, okay. If you want to do it, the slow song, I'm not going to say all of them. Okay. But the slow song was "Have Not Been the Same," which is where they get the the yeah, yeah. title from. Yeah, that's the name of that album as well. Uh, the Sloan song is "Lucky for Me," huh. and they don't actually have a local rabbit song on here. Oh, okay. Um, but they do have "Poisoned" with Art Bergman, which was not what, listed. What song is it? Final cliche. Oh, too bad. So we venture freeway. Yeah, it seems like they picked. I don't know. Maybe some like pretty obscure. Yeah, yeah. Like Lucky so. for Me seems like a really strange Sloan song. Yeah, it's not even like the. Yeah, it's weird. Maybe it's the ones that bands are willing to. Maybe it's the ones that were cheaper to to license. Yeah, maybe. They also did a another one in 2011. 
which featured contemporary Canadian indie rock artists performing cover versions of songs from the period covered by the book. Oh, okay. Weird. Um, so they had uh, Cuff the Duke. Oh, yeah. Good. Like them. Cover a song by the Inbreds. We've had the Inbreds and Cuff the Duke on the show. Um, and they also had Corb Lund cover a song by Junior Gone Wild. Huh. Which is a country slash punk rock band from Edmonton. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of them. But I'm not, not, a huge, not a huge fan of countries. Yeah, I don't know any of the other bands that are covering or any of the other. Oh, they did have um, The Lines You Amend covered. Okay. By Forest City Lovers. That's the song, song The Lines You Amend. Yep. Um, About suicide, everyone. Yeah, I don't, I don't know any of the other songs covered. But I can send you the link for that for sure. Yeah, I'd like to see it. Okay, well, let's actually listen to Local Rabbits. How's that sound? Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Is so, that what we do on this podcast? Yeah, that's right. So, so this is from their first and books? my favorite. <laughs> we talk about books a lot. <laughs> Sorry. This is uh, from their first and my favorite. Um, oh, you sent it to me. This I is did. from my first and my favorite uh, local, rabbits, local album. rabbits album. You Can't Touch This from 1995. Here is a kooky kind of a song called Yo Teach.
All right. So that was Local Rabbits with Yo Teach. And maybe, Mary, maybe you're thinking, Dad, why did you choose that song? <laughs> it's kind of a weird one. <laughs> I, you know what, Dad? Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I was thinking that. And then I listened to the song. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what? I love this song. <laughs> it's a great song. It's so good. The guitar playing is so good. Yeah. That's what I, I like about it. The whiny, incomprehensible vocals. <laughs> I love everything about the song. It's so good. Yeah. Apparently about a cool teacher. And there's nothing I dislike more than a cool teacher. So that's, mm. that's, that's, you know, that seems like a perfectly good victim for a song. And I right. really do love the guitar playing to the song. And what's weird about this song is that it reminds me of the way that the Magic Band, Captain Beefheart's backing band, played their instruments on Chope Mask Replica. I know that sounds weird, but just the kind of strange, this is, a, you know, this is, it's a very kind of strange way that they've arranged their guitars in this song. And it just makes, it just kind of reminds me of the kind of weird guitar arrangements on Chope Mask Replica. I think Chope Mask Replica is way more complicated than what they're doing here, but, but it just kind of reminds me of it. So um, what, what I'd like to do is play something. Okay, I have a version of Trout Mass Replica from the Captain Beefheart box set, Grow Fins, that's just the backing tracks. It doesn't have Captain Beefheart singing. So you can kind of, you'll hear just the drums and guitar parts to the song. And I just want to play you a little bit of it. Uh, just one of, the, one of the tracks. So you can hear what I hear and see if you think that it's true. Okay, so we're just going to play that now.
All right, so there we go. I don't know if people heard what I heard, but but that's okay. Um, all right, let's go on to your next song, Mary. Unless you have something more you want to say my about. What's that? Do you say my next song? Do you say let's go on to your next song? Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh. Maybe I'll. Okay. Well, maybe let's I'll leave go on to the next song. Let's go on to a next song. Unless you have more to say about the local rabbits. Mm, no, we've talked about them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think people know my feelings and, on local rabbits. Yeah, and I don't know. I can't promise that they don't appear again. I, I can't even remember now. So. I always feel like the last one we play is like, like the you know the last song we played by the local rabbits was the last song that I did, and then another one pops up. So I'm like, well, that's in the local rabbits. We won't hear that anymore. More of them, and then oh, there's another song. By them. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, there's a few bands that kind of come up, repeat over and over again, mostly because I'm trying to sell them to you folks. I'm trying to like, I was trying to, you know, you ever heard Sloan? Ever heard Sloan? You might like Sloan. You might like Sloan. You've never heard Sloan, right? Here you go. Hey, the you person, you've never heard Sloan before. You can have it. Yeah, and I mean, I think it is important to remember, too, that when Dad was making these mixtapes, he was making them for each individual person. That's right. Not That's right. for uh, them to be later played on a podcast and dissected <laughs> by his critical daughter. <laughs> you left out hyper. Yes, sorry, hypercritical daughter. Yeah, like, hmm, why do you have so many field music songs on here, Dad? <laughs> That's me. That's what I sound like. <laughs> That's good. I like that voice. <laughs> If you could do the whole, Such... you could do the whole show in that voice. That'd be good. Yeah, I'll do the whole. Wait, that's more gangster. <laughs> I, I, I lost it. You know what? I did it. It was gold. I had it and I dropped it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. See, I don't yeah, like the songs see? you're playing on this show. <laughs> see, <laughs> I'm a 1920s floozy. See, <laughs> it's kind of a different, kind of a different voice. You know, then the uh, more I believe you'll find. I think if you put I believe you'll find before it, you probably come right back into that voice. If you... Yeah, I believe you'll find. No, no, I <laughs> I lost it. It's gone. It's forever. That's amazing to me that you could lose a voice like that. I don't know. Anyway, I all right. Did. I don't know what I did to get it. I don't know what I did to lose it. You know, but you it's like trying it. to grab vapor. <laughs> My hands, it's gone. <laughs> oh well, at least you're inspired at that moment. That's good. Yeah, you know, that's all that matters. That's all that matters, for sure. All right, so let's go on to our next... Can you hear the rain? No, is it raining there? Yeah, it's raining like crazy. And then uh, water is pouring off the tarp on the roof and then Whoa. flowing down by the window. So it's... Got a call. I'll send you a picture of my view right now. <laughs> okay. No, my view isn't much. It's just uh, the window, some rain, water droplets, and the fence. And some chickens walking around every once in a while. Oh, beautiful. I know. Oh, my God. Gosh, pretty nice up here. Not down here. <laughs> here in the temperate rainforest. It was actually supposed to be stormy today. That's what my weather app said. It said Saturday stormy. Huh. It, it's also supposed to rain this afternoon, but we'll see. That's not so not so great here. Put it that way. All right. So, Mary, I think this is our mm -hmm. penultimate song, and this is where the this is where to me my mixtape gets kind of weird because I really like I really like how it flows together. But I have to say, like in terms of side enders and stuff like that, the next two songs are weird. So this is a band called Hearts and Flowers. Mm -hmm. The song is called Tin Angel, bracket, Will You Ever Come Down, bracket. Or also known as Ode to Tin Angel. Depends which, which album you look at. The single was called Tin... Uh, it was a B-side to one of their singles. And it was called Tin Angel, bracket, Will You Ever Come Down, bracket. But then on the album, it's called Ode to Tin Angel. So it's weird. But anyway. Uh, it comes from the album of Horses, Kids, and Forgotten Women. This came out in 1968. So let's give it a listen, everyone. Mm -hmm. 
okay, before you say anything, Mary, I just have to tell you, this song has everything I love in a song. It's beautifully melodic. Mm-hmm. It has a, an amazing arrangement. I love the strings mm-hmm. in this song. Mm-hmm. I love the I love the chanting in it. I love the fact. I also love that when it ends, it it has a separate section at the ending where it's like like a kind of finger picking part. That's almost sort of like a country part that, that kind of you know uh, ends the song. I just love it in every way. What do you think about it? I liked it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, that was a really good song. Yeah, it's really beautiful, and it's just a song I'd never heard before until I bought the Nuggets box set the, from Rhino Records called "Where the Action Is." Which oh, okay. is a four, so, what's that? So, yeah, Dad. Yeah. Does that mean that that's two Nuggets um, songs this week? Yes, because we did uh, Lyman Sibel as well. Sibyl. Yeah, which is, yeah, which is also uh, which is also from Nuggets. Exactly, that's right. First of that as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a great. Well, you know, it just depends. Like sometimes you listen. I think there is another, and actually, I think on the next side, quote unquote, of the mixtape, there is another song from this from this Nuggets collection. From where mm-hmm. the action is. Okay, cool. It just happened to be in. I just, you know, it's all happenstance. It just happens to work out that way. Sometimes stuff is in your right. playlist. And at this point, I was, you know, probably listening listening to music, and uh, this just came up in my shuffle. And I, you know, I just thought it was great because I, if I hear a song I like, I'll write it down for later mm-hmm. use in a, in a mixtape. Oh, okay, yep. I have like quite an extensive stuff on my phone of in my in my little memo thingy. I've got like right. these long lists of songs. Sometimes they're top five songs. Other times they're like songs intended for um for. Uh, mixes oh yeah so yeah it's uh yeah it's a good collection it's it's based in los angeles so it's all like the la bands and stuff like that and it has like sort of the murder kind of garage rock bands and then and then it has like um the folk rock kind of stuff and then it it has it separates them into like the studio more more groups that were based in the studio or songs that had more of a studio element to it. and this this band definitely had like a studio element to it partly because they were a trio three guys didn't have a drummer so when they played and uh when they recorded for their albums, they would be augmented by a session musician. And this song is like an example of like being really augmented by session musicians. Uh, but Hearts and Flowers themselves were are like were actually a really influential group in LA because they were like one of the very first uh, uh, groups to like primarily play country music and have a kind of country rock, country folk rock element to their music. And they were really influential on on that scene. They really kind of inspired a lot of other groups to follow, kind of go in that direction as well. And but when they signed to Capitol Records, uh, they had an imprint called Folk World. When they signed to that to that re- that label, they found themselves be kind of tweaked, be kind of tweaked to be more folk rock than country, because country wasn't really well thought of, you know, as a kind of hybrid thing at that time period. And folk rock right. was much more popular, you know, whether it was the Birds or the Turtles or whoever. There's all these bands who were following in that kind of early folk rock sound, and so they're kind of pushed in that direction. And so by this album, by by this was their second album. They were joined by Birdie Ledden, the guitarist, uh, guitar songwriter, singer songwriter. Now he had just left Dillard and Clark, who also were following in a country in a kind of country rock element. But he felt kind of pushed out by them them bringing in uh, Doug Dillard's girlfriend Donna Washburn on on vocals, which kind of pushed Bernie Ledden out of that role. And so he left the group, kind of unhappy with where he, where he was where he was in that group. And he joined Hearts and Flowers. And so. He played with them for a while, and then of course, when he left them, he joined the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then when he left the Flying Burrito Brothers, he joined the Eagles, most famously. And of course, that was the group that sort of most, brought most him. Most famous for being hated by you. <laughs> it's a very well-known group that I do not like. That's exactly right. So uh, now, vocalist guitarist Larry Murray is the one who wrote this song, 
Um, he was inspired, weirdly, by a Mexican folk art angel that he had on his mantelpiece. And it was kind of, it felt like it was dancing in the flickering candlelight. And it's, it's, it kind of inspired the song for him. And when he played it to um, Nick Vanette, kind of legendary capital producer, was the early, I would say, executive producer of the Beach Boys early recordings. Of course, Brian Wilson is always a producer of the Beach Boys, but he was, Nick Vanette was, was a helper. Uh, and the person who was wise enough to recognize that Brian Wilson should just be let to do his own, left to do his own thing. And, and if he just kind of like oversaw production, all, all would be well, which I think is like the best sort of producer, someone who recognizes where he belongs in the, in, a, in, in the, in the, uh, the workflow, I guess I could say. So Nick Vanette asked Murray how he envisioned the song and Murray replied, Sergeant Pepper. And so Vanette just kind of went all out with this, uh, arrangement, which was by a guy named Tony Cost. And so I was kind of curious what else he did, because I really liked the arrangement. And I, was, I looked him up. And basically, he worked on surfing, like surf music records before this. And he doesn't really have any credits after, so I don't know what happened to him. But because this is such a beautiful arrangement of a song, I think. And the reason, Mary, that I think that this song is weird, or that this is kind of weird, like the ending of this CD is like, like normally if you heard this song at the end of a CD, you'd be like, oh, Dave's found his ending song. This is where he's stopping. Perfectly good. All done. Next week we'll do side two, right? Right. When you yes. say that, like when I you hear the song, that. when you hear the song, you're like, "Oh, what a great ender!" Like, but for whatever reason, no, I didn't want to end it right. there. I had to go you on. To leave a funny taste in the in the person's mouth. I had to. Or uh, before the side ender. <laughs> Be fair. There's no real side mm-hmm. enders, right? There's no official side ender. No, that's fair. You're not you're not flipping the CD over yeah, and, yeah, and trying to yeah. play it upside down. Exactly. That's right. So I'm kind of pulling uh, that science fiction writer you mentioned earlier, and I'm writing five more chapters after everything has apparently ended. I can't remember the name, guy's name again. What was his name? Kim Clark, Kim Clark Chamness? Was that the science fiction writer you mentioned earlier? No, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson. That's right. Sorry. Oh, that's right. Kim Clark Chamness was a much music VJ. Anyway. Okay. No one different, really got... different. Never got them mixed up. Uh, so, Mary, this is we're gonna get funky now. This is Fred Wesley and the JBs. The song is called "Blow Your Head," which uh, my version of this comes from their uh, greatest hits collection called "Pass the Peas," the best of the JBs that was uh, issued in 2000. The song itself came out in 1974. So let's give a lesson. Let's give a lesson. Let's give a listen to "Blow Your Head." You ready, Mary? Mm-hmm.
camp on this do you kind of think this is like a weird song to as a side ender i think it's a weird song in general i especially <laughs> think it's a weird song as a side ender <laughs> i have to admit dad that my notes for it were why really yeah well i like the song a lot would be the reason I why i didn't understand it i think okay it's a dance song you can get up and dance to it if you want it's a funk song it's fun it's got some um i just sorry i just want to quickly it's got some great moog synthesizer Wait, wait, I just want to quickly interject to say that right now I'm looking at a kestrel. Yeah? Which is a small bird of prey. Yes. They're like a, they're like smaller than a crow. Oh, wow. And he's sitting on a branch and he's eating a mouse. Oh, wow. Oh, he just flew away with it. Oh, no, he's coming back. Huh, he heard you talking about him. I guess so. He's shy. <gasps> oh, he's giving it to his girlfriend. Oh, nice. There's two of them. And it, oh, she's, she just took the mouse from him. <laughs> He like held it out to her in his beak, and she grabbed it. Nice. She's like, "This, this is mine now." <laughs> well, uh, I would feel sorry for the mouse if only I hadn't had an infestation of mice in my shop one time. Yes. And let me tell you, folks, they poo and pee every two inches. They sure do. I used to have to clean out a lot of little tiny mouse turds when I worked at camp because okay. we had yeah. um, an infestation of mice there because we were in the woods, <laughs> and that's where mice live. <laughs> yeah. Yes, to be fair, you were kind of sharing the space with the mice, but I, mm-hmm. I feel in a suburb they don't they don't need to be there. There's we have a we have a nice forest nearby. They can do all they want. There. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, they liked coming in because it was warm in our buildings, and people would often leave food behind in couches and on the counters. Okay. So they'd come in and you know oh toasters too. <laughs> Sometimes you'd like they they'd just be like a little mouse pop out of a toaster. Yeah. Because of all the crumbs in the toaster, you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I almost forget to but, clean out the toaster. Wasn't that kind of scary? Was it scary for the mice to be there? No, for yourself. Like when a mice mouse pops out of a toaster. Um, no, it was more irritating. <laughs> the worst was when you found them in toilets. Oh yeah. As soon as they'd fall in and they drown. Yeah. Then you have to get them out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Not fun. Mice. Stop it, mice. Yeah. So we're back to this song. Oh yeah. Uh, now. You know what? I tried. I tried it with the other way around. I did did do a version with "Blow Your Head" first, and then followed by "Tin Angel," and I didn't like it as much. It didn't work as okay. it didn't work as well to me. I, I preferred it the other way around. Yeah, I know it's strange, isn't it? It just the I think maybe in the flow because you know, like I say, there's no real side two. So the flow from this song, from from uh, "Tin Angel" to this song to the next song, just worked for me for some reason. And it didn't work the other way around. Maybe there's too much similarity between "Tin Angel" and the next and the the following track. The way I 
you know, it just didn't work for me. So I, I, I kept, I turned it back around the way I, I had it and I liked it more. And I, and I'm, so I'm going to stand by this as like a, an acceptable choice. And I really do like the song. I'm sorry that it didn't get it. I don't know what there's to get. It's just a bunch of guys having fun playing, playing their instruments. And one guy's squelching away in a, in a Moog synthesizer. <laughs> I think that's what I didn't like about it. Well, that's what I liked about it so much. was just the, just the whole combination of the synthesizer and then the horns. And it's just funky. It's a funky time. The JBs, Mary, were the replacement group for James Brown's group. Because it was originally James Brown and the Famous Flames. That was the name of the group. And he played with them for a long time. But things came to a head in 1969. And, and all of his bandmates walked out on him over pay, pay disputes. Mm. Just two stayed behind. There was two stalwarts. One was Bobby Bird, who was always a stalwart with James Brown. Because Bobby Bird was the kind of like the founding member of the famous flames and he brought james brown into the group and then james brown took over the group from bobby bird and he became like the the leader of the of the famous flames but bobby bird recognized james brown's immense talent and went along with it he was fine with it and when they had this big dispute he stuck with james brown he stuck with him for a long time finally they did finally have like a falling out but they stuck together for a long time the other person who stayed was this guy named john jabo darks who was the drummer he he stayed around so what James Brown did in kind of an emergency situation was he just plucked two guys out of a out of this little soul group R&B group that was based in Cincinnati called the Pacemakers. They were completely unknown; no one knew who they were. They're just like a local band, but they were two great musicians. One was William Bootsy Collins, really famous as a bassist. The other guy Bootsy. was Bootsy, yep. Yeah. Another guy was was Phelps Catfish Collins, his brother. Catfish, another good nickname. Another good nickname, yeah. Well, Phelps itself is a great name, but yeah, Catfish is also good. And then, uh, and then uh, he played guitar, and so they joined with JB, and they became the JBs. They joined James Brown, and uh, but and the other interesting thing about the Pacemakers was the lead singer was Philippe Wynn, who later went on to join the Spinners and have hits with like Games People Play and uh, Rubber Band Man and I'll Be Around, all their great songs. He sang on those, so you know he bounced back as well. So uh, that version of the JBs, they recorded like you know some great, some great. James Brown songs like Sex Machine and Superbad, you know. Mm-hmm. And then um, trombonist, arranger, Fred Wesley, who had left in the, uh, in the great James Brown, Famous Flames diaspora, he returned. <laughs> and and what, a funny way to refer to it. What's that? Sorry, what? I said this is a funny way to refer to it. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I like words. And then... Yeah, I, I, I know that you like words. And then... Um, and then Maceo Parker, the sax man, he 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 came back a little a little short while later later as well because if the guys he figured well as Fred returned I can return as well so he came back. Uh, but then in 1971, tired of James Brown, let's face it, rather petty system of fines for like on stage mistakes or off stage bad behavior. It kind of I'm sorry, he had a system of fines. Yes, he would charge you a fine if you like played a wrong note on stage, you would get charged against your pay. Your pay. Yikes! That's why the original yeah. band. <laughs> left as well. Oh, was that that's what they left? Yeah, I think that was part of it. Well, also he, he was real cheap, so he didn't pay anyone what they were what they were worth. Right, and he's paying them with their own money. <laughs> yes, that's right. That he withheld. <laughs> so the Collins brothers they left the group to join uh, George Clinton's much looser, to say the least, a Parliament Funkadelic collective. Um, but the JBs continued on, of course, and Bull Your Head was recorded in 1973 while James Brown was recording the Payback soundtrack. Well, it was a movie recorded for a soundtrack. I can't remember what movie it was for now, but but when he turned in the music for it, the rec- the the film company declined to use it, saying it was just the same old James Brown music again. 
but then you put it out and everyone's like this is they went hey this is the same uh same old james brown music again we love it let's make it number three on the charts so yeah yeah like why what did they want yeah they exactly around to make their music they wanted something not james brown yeah i know it's so weird isn't it so dumb i know he'd done two other soundtracks and then they they hired him because they're doing like these black exploitation films of course and and uh they got it and they're like nah they were like wow you made the music that you were famous for <laughs> exactly <laughs> no thanks we turned it down apparently the director was really choked they did that too <laughs> That's yeah, it. I bet. Because he was probably like, James Brown? That'd be <laughs> awesome. Yeah, exactly. Working with the Godfather of Soul. Yeah, so while they were like, oh, no, it turns out we actually just don't like soul music. Yeah. So while they were working with James Brown, while they were doing the, the payback, which is what the album became without without being connected to a movie, they um they also recorded a, a, an album uh, with that song on it. So that was pretty good. So I really oh. like that song, but... But yeah. So there you go, Mary. That's side one of Pierce Johnson's mixtape. Very good. And I got to say, like I mm-hmm. said before, I really like this mixtape. And I'm going to yeah, tell you one more tape. I'm going to tell you one more thing. I think it yes. gets even better on side 2. Ooh, okay. I think we're on I think it's like an upward trajectory right to the top. Nice. I like that sales pitch. <laughs> so that's going to be the next episode, of course. You're, everyone out there is going to have to wait an entire bye week before they hear it. But in the meantime, they can hear mm-hmm. this one and enjoy it because it's really good yeah. as well. Also in the meantime, they can listen to um, Sneaky Dragon. That's true. And they can also let us know how they feel about the podcast. That's true. How can they Should do that, I Mary? Know how they can do that? Oh, um, so they can do that by sending us an email at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com or just visiting sneakydragon.com to comment on the message boards there for each episode. They can also follow us on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon or on Facebook at sneaky dragon. Or on the website, sneakydragon.com, they can find our um, mailing address. That is true. If you want us to receive your communication in weeks rather than seconds. <laughs> there you go. And, oh, sorry, I missed, oh, sorry. What? That's okay. Did, was, did you mention that we have a mailing address on, on the website? I did. Okay. I just said that. I'm sorry, I was just, I was fiddling with something and I, I missed that. I'm sorry. No, I like said the thing about how Yeah, no, it was a good it was a good gag. It was a good gag at the end and that's what made me think that you said it, but I just missed it before that that good oh, joke. So okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. I apologize. Sometimes I have to do technical things here. Right. That take me away from, from you. I apologize. Paying for that. attention to your own daughter. Yes. Exactly. Wow. I apologize. But we want the show just to go kidding. smoothly, right? No, I know. I'm just joking. Just joking, Dad. Just a joke. My feelings are hurt. Well <laughs> Well everyone <laughs> Really, really nice. You can necessary. be with us this week on the show. Really enjoyed having everyone here. Not that mean, Dad. In the rumpus room. <laughs> Dad, it's, it really takes myself. away the impact if you say rumpus room while you're trying to cry. By myself in the rumpus room this week, which was kind of sad anyway, but Mary what? really kind of made it worse. But anyway, it's fine. It's all good. I'm okay. You're... I'm okay, Mary. You're not really crying. You could say... And also you keep talking about the rumpus room. You could... Uh, what's that, sorry? The rumpus room. Yeah. yeah it's not a sad-sounding place. Here at lonely, lonely Old Stew Stew Studio. <laughs> this is bad fake crying, Dad. I guess we'll say farewell, everyone, for this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not going to cry anymore gonna tell myself right now david you have to be braver just gotta let mary get to you dad it's still good mary i can't can't go on anymore 
Oh my god. Okay, let's just end the show. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> bye, everyone. We'll see you in a bye week. <laughs> Dad. Yes, Dad. Right. That, yeah? would, that would be like a jerk. <laughs> what you make me feel bad. Did you I make you feel like bad? too mean to you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was joking, of course. <laughs> Just being a goof. Dad, I just, I just feel like you're just like making me feel bad. By pretending oh no, Mary made you cry too. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> bye, everyone. Okay, bye.